Games Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. And I'm Michael Letts. You're listening to the, uh, hold on, let me pull it up. Give me two seconds. I should have had it up beforehand. The 23, 23rd, 23rd best podcast of the decade. Yes. Ranked. It's, it's, it's there in print. Just to give you an idea, it's uh, from from Paste Magazine's 30 Best Podcasts of the 2010s. Let me just give you an idea. So, uh, podcasts worse than ours. Uh, Chris Gethard's Beautiful Anonymous. Trash, <laughs> as we know. Welcome to Night Vale. Puff. Amateur hour Laughable. compared to this. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're at a nice, uh, we're at a nice 23. Um, you know, people barely beating us out. You know, and, and it's basically equal when you're in the 20s, but, you know dan Harmon's podcast it's just yeah. i i'll you know it's yeah. probably the exact same as ours yeah i uh, mean you I made it weird so. it's just like a little bit better probably it's longer honestly those interviews somehow are longer than what we do on this show <laughs> pete holmes come get at me pete holmes <laughs> how dare you pete holmes guesting on game study study buddies oh the alt it's seven hours long <laughs> There's no way it's not seven full hours. I wonder. Maybe I'll, I'll send Pete Holmes an email. If you got Pete Holmes's email, and you're listening, hook us up. Because mm-hmm. I'm very curious if we can give Pete Holmes an essay and just be like, Pete Holmes, what do you think about this? And eight hours later, we're like, well, actually, Foucault. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but yeah, I just wanted to say that at the beginning. Thanks. Shout out to uh, Jacob Oler, who uh, wrote the little blurb here. Each each writer, I guess, wrote the little blurb on a thing and probably had to advocate very hard for us to be on this I list. was going to say, I, I imagine <laughs> like that he had to work really hard to convince people that our podcast should be on that list. Yeah, there's a uh, there had to be some like that's six months of lobbying easily. That's a David Lynch out on the front lawn with the cow lobbying for Laura Dern <laughs> levels of uh, of trying to convince people of things. So, shout outs to you. Thanks, thanks so much to Paste for ranking us there. Um, but we're not talking about Paste. I was trying to I was going to make a, like a glue or a paste pun or something like that. But you know what the glue is that holds society together, Michael. Um, is it, uh, reading over the notes that we took and discussing them? It's close. It's play. Oh, 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 okay. All right. Missed the obvious, obvious handoff there. Okay. You know, yeah, yeah. Huh. I mean, whoo, like, uh, uh, you know, that was it. That was me throw. That was me, um, Rocky one style, just throwing a big old load of ham right at you. <laughs> and you're down there, you're on the truck. You're supposed to catch that thing. I'm like, I but, love this delicious ham, chomp. Mm-hmm. Ham hit the floor. Didn't work. Um, so we're reading James S. Hans Hans's. It's gonna be hard for me. James S. Hans's uh, "The Play of the World," a book that I have lobbied for, and a book that I've said is quote my favorite book of game studies mm-hmm. for a long time now. Yeah. So this book is uh, from 1981. Uh, and I, I guess one of the questions I wanted to pose to you right up front is like, how are we going to talk about this thing? Because this is by far, I think, maybe the weirdest book we've read for a couple of reasons. Mostly to do with us, I think. <laughs> well, um, one of the reasons it's weird, you know, I, I, I agree, very weird. 
One of the reasons I would say it's weird is that uh, in the first five pages, he says, Games suck. Games are a way of avoiding talking about play. I'm not talking about games. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a whoo. Hard to do that one. Um, another reason that's weird is this is basically like a capital T theory. And if you're a listener who is not, you know, in graduate school or like in the academic milieu, we say things like capital T theory, or I say, I won't say we, I say things like capital T theory all the time. I don't want to, um, incriminate Michael. Oh and, no, I say it too. Like I, okay, <laughs> good. We're, we're, uh, equally to, to blame for this. But, um, when we say that, what that means is like, there was a moment in the 20th century that we refer to all the time as, as you know, the kind of moment where theory and really the domain of philosophy and its kind of attendant zones of things it cares about kind of reigned supreme as the key discipline that other people had to pass through. Um, and that took a lot of different forms. Psychoanalysis is part of that too. I say philosophy, but psychoanalysis mm -hmm. is in there. It was really, you know, a move, a moment from the 1930s in a general sense, all the way up kind of to the 2000s. Um, and it's still there, but um, but in a, in a different mode now. But where if you wanted to talk about something in a broad sense, or if you wanted to talk about your discipline, um, so say you're an English scholar, mm -hmm. it was insufficient for some people, and certainly in like the Ivy League and in, in the kind of larger, uh, more prestigious institutions, it's insufficient to say like, read King Lear and just talk about what's happening in King Lear. Mm -hmm. You gotta talk about King Lear and psychoanalysis. You gotta talk about King Lear and post-structuralism and the structure of the self and how uh, subjectivity comes into existence mm -hmm. uh, or how it intersects with, uh, I mean, when we say capital T3, really French theory is very high on this or a big part of this, but also um, 19th century and early 20th century German philosophy, so Heidegger, mm -hmm. um, and even going back to like Hegel and Kant. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I honestly, Marxism is in here too. It's it's in here, uh, and and but I, I the reason I'm saying like I think capital T theory is like its own thing that intersects with the Marxist tradition, mm -hmm. and then the Marxist tradition is like its own parallel track, right? Because mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people who are Derridians and deconstructionists who you know their whole project is based on Marxism not being good enough, right? right. Uh, or insufficient. So, but yeah, you're 100 percent right that that is another like pillar of capital T theory that people are are using or talking with. Which is all just to say that there's this mode of engagement with texts that look to philosophical concerns at the same time as looking at the text itself or looking at the, the kind of object you could hold in your hands. That you had to pass through this other discipline almost or this other language of talking about or, or you know, mode of talking about aesthetic production, humanity, culture, in order to actually talk about that thing. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair historical summary, Michael? Yes, absolutely. Right. Um, that's more or less how I would understand it, even coming from the the sample discipline of, of English. There was a sense that essentially, um, I mean, within English specifically, what happens is English as a discipline form, formulates uh, in the early 20th century <clears throat> around a process called close reading, where all you do is you look at the text itself. Um, you don't have to look at anything outside of this. Like contextually, the idea is that poems um, are like poems, for example, are supposed to be kind of self-sufficient little machines. Um, and then with the '60s, especially within English, uh, you get a lot of reaction against that uh, as kind of culture becomes like politicized or what have you. 
So that's that's a that's like one of the big uh, historical narratives in in English studies, at least, uh, is thinking about how oh all of this stuff that um, that like new criticism and close reading uh, assumes about like a stable unitary a historical subject is just bunk, mm -hmm. right? And so that's where that's why everyone starts talking about subjectivity. Yeah, and so so then there become all these like different ways of navigating, right? So exactly new historicism or like really grounding, you know, not to not to gloss new historicism this way, but mm -hmm. actually caring about context. Right. The context of the conditions under which it well, and a work emerged. Specifically, like there like it's called the new historicism because prior to the rise of theory, there was like historicist criticism, but it was mostly like, here is how John Milton um, seems to be responding to some Greek plays that we mm -hmm. can very plausibly suggest that he read, right? And that's kind of it, right? It's about sort of the poetry itself, whereas new historicism comes in, and that entire model is Foucauldian, right? That takes Foucault's idea of how culture works, of how power works, and uh, maps history and cultural production um, in, in a literary sense into into that sort of like Foucauldian superstructure, so... Yeah, absolutely. There's this, um, you, you, you know, rather than it being about the biography of the person, which, you know, classical, historical, you know, literary analysis or whatever, really was into the biography of the person. Where were they? What were they thinking about? What were they reading? That kind of thing. Um, the new historicism, right? All about much more broader sets of context and the structure that sets up that context, right? Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about Foucauldian, um, you know, that's that's kind of what we mean. So that's all to say... This is a book that is in the trenches of capital T theory, meaning that it takes the idea of play and then really goes into and uses it as a way of talking about philosophy or rather the other way around, tries to understand play philosophically mm -hmm. um, and through the big philosophers of, it, of the day or of, of a particular trajectory of the day. So we get in this book um, some of the most difficult people to read. Mm -hmm. in of the past 200 years so we're gonna get schiller we're gonna get uh godamer mm -hmm. we're gonna get heidegger a little bit through mm -hmm. via via godamer we're going to get derrida mm -hmm. and we're going to get deleuze and guattari a lot of deleuze and guattari at a point in time when not a whole lot of people in english are interfacing very well with deleuze and guattari <laughs> Absolutely. So this is 1981. This is after after Anti-Oedipus comes out, but I don't think the English translation of Anti-Oedipus had come out. I looked it up. It had. Wild. It had just okay. come out. In 80, maybe? Uh, yeah, like 80 or 79. Gotcha. Um, so so maybe, so maybe reading uh, Anti-Oedipus in English. Uh, but A Thousand Plateaus had not come out yet. That's 84. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, whoop, whoop, I should probably know these things. But uh, that's a little bit later than this book. Um, so it is interesting that he is kind of reading basically half of the story of, of Dillis and Guattari's two major works that they wrote together, which is Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus. Together they make up um, what is called uh, Capitalism and Schizophrenia. That's kind of the big name for it. It is, it is not schizophrenia in a general sense. It is in, a, in an actual technical sense, Guattari. Uh, so it's Gilles Deleuze, who's a philosopher, and Felix Guattari. Felix Guattari is a psychoanalyst. He's kind of a radical psychoanalyst. Um, at the time, he's working at the Laborde Clinic, which is a clinic specifically working with uh, schizophrenics. 
or, or predominantly with schizophrenics. And um, so the way that, and even the way that Hans does this, he kind of begins taking the term schizophrenia maybe out of its use case in anti-Oedipus. And this is a common thing that, that happened with Deleuze and Guattari. Mm-hmm. So I'll try to give some context when we get there um, for what's maybe actually going on in that book and how Hans is reading it give you some orienting stuff so you don't feel lost. It's very easy to feel lost within Deleuze and Guattari. Sadly, it is actually kind of the point (laughs) Uh, to make you feel lost. Um, Another name that we didn't mention, but who is interesting, and I've read um, one book by, but I would would never say that I'm even remotely as qualified to talk about um, uh, this person as I am with all the other names, is Rene Girard. Yes, yes, Rene oh. Girard, who I think I might have mentioned Girard on on this podcast before, way back at the beginning. I have a feeling I did this um, in like the first two episodes for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Girard is very interesting to show up here because he's kind of uh, he's he's an anticipation of this moment of theory. He's a little older. He's like very much the so the other other way of talking about the capital T theory um, that we've been discussing is like a lot of this theory is often called a post structuralist, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is to say like basically like that's the post nineteen sixty eight like Derrida shows up and is just like hey guess what there is no being or something, um, then then everyone everyone is is having a field day, but uh, Girard is operating before this and he is. Uh, more what we would think of as a structuralist, uh, as a person who is kind of uh, going to like a um, a little more like like Bart, like early Bart, uh, looking for a recurring structure, like trying to find the language to describe recurring structures in culture, and you find that influence very strong in Hans here. Yeah, absolutely. He he is he loves the analysis of. Um, of the post-structuralist, but he really kind of yearns for the material specificity, right? Like the exact uh, societal location mm-hmm. of um, of the structuralist here. And interestingly enough, this is in the preface, uh, Rene Girard offered comments on the book before yeah. it came out, yeah, which no. I think is quite interesting. How did you manage that, James? I, I, I imagine he had to have worked with him. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that influence p- feels too specific because um, like you know Girard this is not to disparage Rene Girard Rene Girard is like a fairly small name in 20th century theory you're not going to buy you know if you go and buy your like theory reader for your senior seminar class on theory Rene Girard's not going to show up in that thing um, and so I, I think there has to be some sort of connection. And even at the time, you know, in, in the wake of post-structuralism, I don't think people were out there, you know, banging on trash cans, asking people to, you know, throwing rocks up to the second story <laughs> saying, have you heard about Rene Girard? <laughs> you know, get out of here. He's, he's doing it. He's thinking about violence in society. Um, so, you know, I don't, I, I think that there has to be some sort of, you know, familial connection there in, in, in James's academic production or uh, 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 not james hans <laughs> Oof. um so james hans was uh at he's he's an emeritus which means he's a retired professor mm-hmm. um from wake forest um you can find his web page uh, if you google for it it's very fun it's got a little ms paint drawn on it yeah i guess so the other thing we should maybe point out is that like this is not a well-known book and this no. is not oh, a part, yeah. like like Hans is not himself a, a, a like 
a, a well-known scholar, right? This is this is this is something that you quite specifically have have uh, dredged up from obscurity for us to talk about. Um, Hans was at the time that he published this book. I think he was at Kenyon, which is a, a small, um, like sort of fancy liberal arts school in Ohio. It's actually. Uh, it, it, Oberlin is probably more well known because of the the political activities of its students, but the Oberlin and Kenyon are kind of of a type. Um, mm-hmm. of, they're they're very similar types of schools in in a in a uh, broader sense. Um, and so he ends up at Wake Forest, and now he's emeritus, and he's written like what four books, maybe? No, more than that. So his uh, faculty page uh, lists one, two, th- one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Um, last book he published was in 2002. Wow. He published a book a year between 1989 and 1995. Yeah. Which is kind of, kind of extreme. It's a lot of books. It's, it's, it is a lot of books. Um, and it sort of makes sense that he would go from kind of the small liberal arts school to, to, uh, a more like, like a research oriented university. And at the same time, like people, as far as I'm aware, right. I, I have never encountered Hans before. Um, he's not someone that people talk a lot about, despite the fact that this book, this freaking book, Cameron <laughs> is one of the most astoundingly insightful things I have read <laughs> at certain <laughs> points. Like, <laughs> yeah, is it, it's, it's kind of, it's pretty wild. <laughs> like in a general sense, which is why I wanted to read it, right? So let me, I, you know, just very briefly, I'll tell you how I got to this book, right? Yeah. Because I, I don't, there's no, well, maybe not no, right? But I don't think there is any set of search terms you could throw into the old internet to get this book for game studies. No, right. This I is this so. is the value of listening to this podcast, right? Because we're doing that old classic work for you, this labor for you. Um, because, yeah, I don't think... This book is not cited within game studies literature at all, um, as far as I know. I've never seen a citation to it. Um, it's not talked about in that way, and I get why to some degree, because as I said, it's a book that very much is... Um, it's not about games. It's about play mm-hmm. and the philosophical idea of play. So the how I got to this book is... And this is something I've talked about on the podcast a little bit before, is I'm fascinated by this movement in the United States... In United States academia, between like, this might be one of the earliest versions, but I'll say 1980 to like 1995. And this is when play and game studies get going, right, in a general sense. And they're happening in all kinds of other, in all kinds of fields. So anthropology actually has a conference, its own individual conference for the study of play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've actually been, T.L. Taylor was tweeting about these recently, uh, like, well, I say recently, a couple months ago. And uh, I actually started buying the, pr- the proceedings from those conferences, and they're fascinating. But that's like 84, 85, 86 is when that really gets going. Um, at the same time, there's a movement that's happening apparently in medieval studies, mm-hmm. in the classics, um, in the kind of intersection of philosophy and English, uh, those kinds of fields, who are really, they, they seem to be involved in like capital T theory, but they don't really seem to be involved in things like um, the other movements of the time. So like they're not really involved in cultural studies. They're not really involved in new historicism like we've been talking about. Uh, so these are people who are doing like classical philosophical inquiry where they're just looking at things and chatting about them, um, but within the context of like Derrida. <laughs> so it's really weird. And they published a bunch of st- a bunch of stuff, like all kinds of different books. They had their own um, 
verticals, I think at maybe um, one of the SUNY presses or maybe at SUNY press. It doesn't really matter. Um, point being is that there are lots of people publishing about play and games in a broad philosophical sense in the 80s and early 90s. Um, and I'm fascinated by it because almost all of that is skipped over in the kind of origination moment of game studies. Mm-hmm. And I do not know why. I'm very curious about it. If you have any answers to that, I'd love to hear them. The But one book of that type that didn't get skipped over, it's the only one you know in this kind of cohort of stuff, is a book called uh, Dionysus Reborn by Mihail Speriosu. And it came out in the early 90s, I want to say. Yeah, it's called Dionysus Reborn, Play in the Aesthetic Dimension of Modern Philosophical and Scientific Discourse. <laughs> what a title. You, you can see shades of that in James Hans, right? James Hans in this book, we'll get to it, <laughs> really starts talking about science and culture quite a bit over the course of this book. Um, but for whatever reason, I don't even remember what book I was reading uh, during my master's that cited Dionysus Reborn. Uh, oh, it's not it's not Mihail Speriosu, it's Mihai, sorry. Um, Mihai Speriosu. And uh, anyway, I read a book during my master's when I was writing... Uh, my master's thesis called The Non-Human Lives of Video Games, which deals with a lot of these issues. And it cited Dionysus Reborn, and I was like, oh, this is cool. I will read this when I'm done. Mm-hmm. Huge mistake. Should have read that while I was writing it. <laughs> but, um, but, but Speriosu cites Hans a bunch of times, like over and over again, really relies on this book very heavily. And so I was like, okay, I'll read that book mm-hmm. and see what's up. Um, and so I was like, I read it, and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> what is going on? Why is no one talking about this book? Um, so it really was a daisy chain of reading the footnotes and reading the bibliography of theory books from 40 years ago <laughs> to get me to this book. And if you're curious, hmm, what kind of reader is Cameron? How, what, how are his tastes forms? What kind of proclivities does he have as a reader? This is the best story that I could provide for you <laughs> about how I read books. Um, if you want a copy of the Speriosu book, um, it is currently $80 on um, Amazon, used, of course. It was only ever printed once, much like James Hans. Um, and uh, you can buy a new copy for $105. Um, so, uh, you know, similar deal with, uh, with The Play of the World, if you haven't looked for it already. Uh, pretty pricey book to buy. Occasionally a used copy will come up on Amazon or A Books for, you know, 20 bucks or so. Um, but actually, when we announced that we were doing this book from the podcast, uh, the price shot up pretty significantly. So <laughs> sorry about that. I'm sure it'll come. It'll enter. I will say this. Uh, someone reached out to me um, after we announced the book and said they found the book out on the Internet in the wild. Oh, uh, you can buy it uh, through Google Books. You can buy it. You can buy a copy on Google Books or... It appears there's a PDF floating around. Oh. I don't know where it is. I don't have access to it. But maybe you could, you know, use your Google Foo to figure it out. We have been recording for 26 minutes. <laughs> well, and this is this is a thing that I felt like was going to happen because it always happens, first of all. But second of all, like, this book is in such a strange position that, <clears throat> I mean, this is this is the first book that we have read that I have, like, stopped in the middle of reading to message you directly and be like, Cameron, what the hell is going on? Because I was so, like, 
overwhelmed and like had no idea what to do with like the fact that this book that was written in 1981 or published in 1981 was saying the things it was saying yeah you repeatedly kept messaging me just 1981 because <laughs> that's pretty astounding mm-hmm. um so so yeah you want to you want to just get right into it and then we can start <laughs> as we get to those arguments in the book mm-hmm. we can we can be like you know giving some context because for probably you know if you're in the audience you might not have a context of why it's so weird for him to be saying these things in 1981 mm-hmm. but one little tidbit i can give you is that the broad uptake of Deleuze and Guattari did not happen in the United States until like 1990, 1995, like in that time period. A lot mm-hmm. of translations happened. A lot of Deleuze and Guattari really got going, especially Deleuze. Um, this is 1981. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a full 10 years before very many people were reading these books. But anyway. Right. So, yeah. So this book begins. Um, I think you've already mentioned this. He uh, just says, like, I'm not going to talk about games. Games are stupid. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about play. Play is what he is interested in. Um, and this puts him in pretty direct, well, not pretty direct, but, like, notably direct opposition to, I guess, the two most comparable people we've read prior to this, which would be um, Kawa and Huizinga, mm-hmm. who are both people who are interested in play, but they think that how you are going to talk about play, how you're going to get about play and how it matters, is by talking about games. Um, there's a kind of, I don't know how, what you'd describe this as, like maybe sort of Aristotelian, right? Like, I'm going to look at all of these different types of games, and from my observation of them, I am going to derive uh, this or that principle of games and this or that principle of play. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and maybe this is, um, it's it's an almost scientific mode, and I guess that is Aristotelian too, right? This, this kind of, uh, we will know it by its works, right? Mm-hmm. This anthropological or sociological thing of, if you create a big enough uh, sample size, and you can find all the um, alignments in those samples, then you've figured out what, what things are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he specifically says, Han says, the connection between playing games, is a quote, the connection between playing games can only be adequately dealt with after one has thoroughly understood the nature of play itself. Mm-hmm. So he's really saying that, like, look, games are great, you know, that sounds cool to analyze. And it's almost like he's setting himself up to write another book here, but he does not go on to write that book. <laughs> um, but he's like, yeah, but but really you need a, a serious theory of play before you can think games because you actually can't work backwards from games to get to play. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's his big contribution here is that actually the alignment amongst, amongst a bunch of different types of games don't really give you a theory of play. They give you a theory of shared characteristics of games. Mm-hmm. And, and that is not what he is after. Right. So, yeah, because because his point is that play uh, or rather games are uh, a a particular formation of a kind of uh, innate play instinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, you know, he says um, this is another direct quote from the introduction. Uh, play is, quote, the fundamental activity of man, the back and forth movement of encounter and exchange with the world in which man is continually engaged. Pause no matter how kind of ahead of this time ahead of its time this book is um and it's certainly ahead of its time uh it is also going to have this uh, peculiarity of its time where whenever we're talking about humans we're going to be saying man yeah and and the assumed pronoun is he throughout Mm -hmm. the whole thing i would not say this is a socially progressive book no 
no, no, no. You know, uh, he was interested in reading Derrida, mm-hmm. I guess. I guess he can't do both for some reason. Uh, <clears throat> no, citation needed. Right. So um, how how uh, uh, Hans ends up going about this, right, is he says, okay, so uh, we are not going to figure out what play is by looking at games, because games are, in fact, uh, secondary to play, which, which exists prior to them. Um, play itself is is something earlier. And so, for instance, if you uh, remember our Huizinga episode, one of the things Huizinga said is that play uh, is about sort of looking at the chaos of, of reality, right, of, of the world in which the subject exists, and instituting a set of fictional rules by which human action might have worth or make sense. Um, it's about the imposition of a kind of structure or order upon a, a, an essentially chaotic reality. Um, so uh, Hans says that this is this is like a problem with Wazinga's entire project uh, because that sense of order is always only illusory. Like and 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 Huizinga himself, and I think we actually probably talked about this. Um, Huizinga himself can't get over the fact that he has like split his terms at the beginning in such a way that play can never be anything more than kind of this weird vein grasping at a kind of more ideal uh, uh, arrangement of the world. Um, so what Hans does is he says play is the thing that exists first. And what play is, um, is, uh, well, and this is another direct quote, uh, its role is not to work comfortably within its own structures. That is, uh, unlike Wazinga, it's not about um, creating the structure that is going to be stable and will hold all of our play for, for time uh, as it marches forward. Um, rather, play constantly uh, develops its structures, or rather, the role of play is, I'm just going to start over this quote because I split it uh, as I was commentating in a wrong way. The role of play is not to work comfortably within its own structures, but rather constantly to develop its structures through play. So there is no stability for play and for Hans as he understands it. It's not about this imagining of, of well, like the, the Huizinga term that people might want to be tempted to use here is like the magic circle right of sort of bounding a part of reality and being like here's how things work here and that's just how it works um what han says is that you start out you bound off a part of reality and you say here's how things work here and then in the process of actually playing you start discovering all the ways in which it doesn't actually work like that and so the structure of play then has to be redeveloped Yes. Does that seem fair, Cameron? Um, yeah. That, that seems exactly fair. And and so that's the, you know, just the clarifying moment here, right? Because we, the the power of Hans is that he has very evocative and useful language, and it's very easy to get buried in that language. And I just want to be very clear for the listener um, who, who, you know, might not be into, like, the theory language that we're going to end up using. For Hans, play is reality. Mm-hmm. It, it is like this this thing, and he's very careful about using the word nature. Doesn't want to use the word nature, but it is the structure of reality itself. This constantly shifting, flowing, productive capability of humans as well as all other objects in the world. There's a point later in this book where he starts talking about the different ways that rocks and humans play. Mm-hmm. I really wish that I'd read this book again before I wrote my master's thesis. <laughs> very helpful for me, but. Um, but right, so so it is not just 
a, a it's not a byproduct of games right as, as you're saying michael and it's not something that necessitates the emergence of games right it's not that art we have some sort of play instinct that means we got i gotta learn how to play football man i gotta create <laughs> ultimate frisbee because play is just in me right which is uh you know a, a brian sutton smithian kind of argument or a psychology of play argument it's that things that we do as a species produce play you know, when dogs are playing, it's because they have a kind of species instinct toward free play or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's not even saying that, right? He's not saying that play is innate to humans or is innate to mammals or is innate to animal life and is part of psychology. He is saying that play is the movement of all of reality mm-hmm. and that when that we can see it sometimes most efficiently. But as you're saying, too, that when you create a magic circle or when you create a play context or a game, right um that is ultimately you're just drawing a little boundary around um something that can't even be captured by that right Mm -hmm. so uh you know i don't know you're um if you're playing racquetball i've never played racquetball in my whole life Mm -hmm. this is not a good example um i don't know you're out there you're playing laser tag in the woods that's a more appropriate example (laughs) you're playing laser tag in the woods and you get attacked by a bear (laughs) okay (laughs) and someone just gets just mauled by a bear it's a tragedy right and then and then in 50 years someone writes their book about growing up playing laser tag in the woods and they mention he was met the he he met the bear and was troubled by it (laughs) exactly um but but that kind of thing this kind of aleatory capacity for reality Mm -hmm. right um that that as you're saying this kind of chaos that can't be contained by the thing um that that's that's the reality of things that are actually happening right this kind of inability to capture the flows and processes of reality itself the what what hans is going to call going to call production Mm -hmm. of reality um that that's the real play right it's the decision of the bear to come and attack you because you're shining a laser an invisible (laughs) laser into its eyeballs and you can't see it out there that is play (laughs) yeah well it's also Uh, like if if you're not as into like the big theory talk but you have more of a handle of the history of philosophy there's actually i think something going on here i don't think he cites hume um directly he does he absolutely does not there's a big a bunch of philosophy gaps here (laughs) yeah but like if if you're familiar with hume and kind of david hume's radical skepticism um so he's like Hume is, is a, a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher who is known for this radical skepticism where he says that, you know, we don't really know that there is some sort of process behind like the sun coming up and going down every day. Right. We just experience it. We experience that and we tend to extrapolate from experience into kind of like uh, universal like laws or something. Um like that, like the the response to the kind of doubt that Hume introduces uh, into into philosophical discourse through his work is responded to in some ways by what Hans is saying here about play, which is we don't know that the sun is going to come up every day, but we kind of assume it does, right? We, we are, we're going to assume that that's what the sun is going to do until the sun proves otherwise, which is kind of how we go about games where we're going to play in this field and we're going to assume that this field is the appropriate type of field. It has the right kind of turf. It has the right dimensions until something happens consistently enough that we realize we're going to have to revise the rules of this game in order to, to continue to make it work. Yes. If you're interested in reading an essay that is about 
the so-called Hume's problem <laughs> around empiricism and uh, in games. Well, wouldn't you know it? I've written one. <gasps> How about that? Oh, my goodness. It's called, it's called The Click of a Button. It's in science fiction, film, and television. Feel free to reach out to me for a PDF copy. <laughs> happy, happy to give it to you. If you, if you, re- you want to hear someone just talking about Hume, just, just thinking about him. Yeah, I'm, I'm your guy. Um, but so that all of that, all the past ten minutes that we've been talking, is to say uh, we are turning this book into a game studies book by mm-hmm. reading it in the context of game studies. Um, it really is a book about play. I'm sure that you know, as we've already done, we are going to have examples of how to think about the this kind of theoretical um, uh, addition to the field in the context of game studies. And we've been doing that a lot already by saying this is like other arguments in game studies. But truth be told, he's pretty serious about not caring about games. Mm-hmm. Play shows up through the rest of the book. It's about 190 pages or so. The word game, I think, doesn't show up again after the preface, not even the introduction. <laughs> so so when we're doing this, we're, we're kind of doing the intellectual labor here of making these attachments. It really is about play. Mm-hmm. And uh, just another like little point, I guess, in the first chapter to this is maybe when I first started to notice that something was up with this book, because up until up until like a certain point, there is a point in this book that I can point out where I was like, what is happening? Um, but up until then, I was just kind of like, oh, this is this is interesting, right? This is some some approaches that I wasn't expecting. And in this first chapter, the uh, the thing that really marks out the argument for me is the way that he engages well, with Derrida. And he engages with Derrida much, much later in much more detail. Um, but he, in this, in his first chapter, which is just called Play, he dismantles, so this is, this is part of, part of the reason this is significant is that it's 1981 and everyone is still all about the Derrida. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so he is having to kind of make his make the case for how he is thinking of play um, against the way that play, I think, is probably predominantly being talked about at the time, which is through uh, the uh, Derridian idea of, of free play, that um, language is not bound to identity, right? That there's a kind of hollowness at the center of of metaphysical reality um and we're always just kind of constantly orbiting around it um so the problem with this like the the critique of of derrida that gets leveled is that uh that may well be true right like uh language may not be grounded in being um but nevertheless, to to call it free play ignores the fact that Derrida himself is like constantly kind of making the same argument over and over again, right? Like that the like there's someone sets out some sort of uh, argument in language, and Derrida comes in and he finds the binary opposition that they're constructing through language, and then he, through close attention to that language and its history, he shows how that binary opposition um, implodes, uh, and. For a long time, if you were a Derridian critic, what it meant was you did Derridia, Derrida's method. You were you were essentially pulling Derrida out and extrapolating him into other fields. And in a very sort of, I think, unique move for this time, Hans comes in and critiques Derrida, says Derrida actually does not go far enough, and that sort of the reproducibility or sort of the um, kind of... Uh, re- uh, 
repetitiveness of his method um, suggests that it is not really free play, right? That he that there is in fact another structure behind this uh, supposed free play that is attempting and that is attempting to ward off its its own kind of troubling um, implications. Yeah, you don't get a lot of people critiquing Derrida from the left in the eighties. Yeah, not not with like this like not with this uh, what's the word? Not with this insight. Not with this kind of like granularity. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and uh, you know, give a little Derrida context here. So Derrida comes into prominence in the 1960s. He's a French philosopher. Um, he's kind of a post-Heideggerian philosopher in that, in that he kind of takes um, Heidegger's uh, theory of being, I guess, is the mm -hmm. philosophy of being, um, and then tries to determine or, or kind of demonstrates that it is insufficient um, for actually talking about how reality functions. And we, what we get, this method that Michael is talking about, is deconstruction. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, deconstruction is the way that we understand that the uh, things that we take as givens, right? So God, mm, the West, mm -hmm. uh, whatever, you, whatever have you, right? These big conceptual ideas that, as Michael is saying, they are ultimately hollow on the inside, that they defer themselves. They rather than having a centrality or having some sort of core um, existence or focus or loci, they, uh, they assemble themselves from the periphery. Um, so they are, so for example, when we talk about the power of God as this kind of uh, literal figure or as a kind of entity or philosophical concept, um, really it is not about what that thing does as a solid entity, but it is about how it locates itself across language or across our assumptions or across our ideologies, even though Derrida would not use that word, our beliefs about the world. And in so doing, it becomes kind of everywhere and nowhere at once. And so you could use deconstruction to talk about how it is nowhere, mm -hmm. right? Um, and to talk about its kind of absence and presence. Um, and when you do that, you realize, oh shit, it does not have the kind of power or it does not have, not have the kind of efficacy that we once thought it did. Derrida is very, very crucial or, or a useful stepping stone, uh, to get to ideas of post-modernity a little bit later. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, uh, that was like the first moment where I thought, huh, something's going on in this book because that was, this, it is unusual to see an Anglophone reader of Derrida be quite this canny about it. Um, Absolutely. So is there anything else in kind of the first chapter that maybe we want to touch on very briefly? Oh, I have not even begun with the first chapter, Michael. We're oh. 44 minutes into oh this episode. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, some things I want to talk about, because we've talked about his notion of play um, in relationship to, to the kind of theories he's building it out of. But I do want to say um, just some kind of uh, pillars for him. Uh, around what play does, right? Mm -hmm. Because for him, it is really important to think about these key terms that he is setting out in this book um, around what they do. Yes. And those three key terms, right, as, as I see them, as he kind of talks about them in the preface as well, is play, which we've talked about a little bit here, mm -hmm. production, which the second chapter is about, and then desire, mm -hmm. and how all three of these things are kind of pseudonyms for one another, or they are processes that run into each other. Um, but why he is so interested, well, let me, let me phrase it this way. He could have wrote this whole book around production, right? It could have been called the production of the world. Mm -hmm. 
he chose not to do that. He chose to use the word play. I think part of that, I think you're exactly right, has to do with his kind of distinction from Derrida, of using Derrida's term free play and suggesting that free play doesn't go far enough, mm -hmm. uh, methodologically or conceptually. Um, but also, it's because he sees play as being useful or uh, constructive of, of humanity in a very particular kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, so, so here's a couple different quotes I, I can read. So one is from the introduction here. Um, so we, we kind of skipped over the introduction in a robust sense, but really it is just a sketch of the book. It's not, uh, it's a very classical introduction in that way. We're just talking about the chapters here. Um, so this is a long quote, but I think it's useful. He says, um, play, he's talking about how play is not a substitute for process or the word flux or anything like that. And he's referring here to like process philosophy mm -hmm. um, or other kind of French theory stuff around flux. So this is the quote. It is, play is a structuring activity, the activity out of which understanding comes. Play is at one and the same time the location where we question our structures of understanding and the location where we develop them. And I will begin the study by probing the relationship between the activity and the structures that result from it. So play produces structures. And I don't think he doesn't mean in the in the way of structuralism that we were talking about before, but he means almost like an edifice or a scaffolding. Play is a thing that when it happens, produces something in the world. Mm -hmm. um, literally the play of the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, the the cover of this is like some weird French picture. Michael, I do you love have the a, cover. Yeah, it is a bizarre, like, it's like people on poles and they're on platforms and they're using ladders. It is, if, if you were going to get a cool tattoo, this would yeah. be acceptable. I was actually really disappointed because I can't figure out, like, what the uh, the image comes from. I can't find it in my copy. Um, but it's great because it's, like, it's, it's very sort of, I mean, it's playful, right? But also kind of mischievous. And there's something also a little sinister about it. <laughs> Oh, it's extremely sinister. It's, it's like it's, a, it's almost like an Edward Gorey illustration. Yes, a hundred. Yeah, the figures have a very like Edward Gorey thing. I'll, I'll take a picture of it and I'll put it on uh, on the Range Touch Twitter so people can see the cover um, in like high detail. But um, but so that's one thing, right? That play happens, and it, as it happens, it produces things, right? It produces structure in the world. Now you remember, play is this kind of substrate, this bubbling of reality that's producing things all the time. So what 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 Hans is saying, right, is that the way that we experience the world and the structures in which we come to experience the world and the kind of frameworks that we come to to experience the world, those are all product produced by play. Mm -hmm. So rather than, and this is in distinction with something like a theory of of ideology, say out of like Marx or. Uh, all through Sayre, much later, but but much more prominent uh, as far as a theory is concerned, right? Which is to say that, you know, all through Sayre would say that ideology is produced through RSAs and ISAs, uh, which are like ways of, of producing modes of thinking in the world. They're really delimited. They're really uh, structurally robust. Um, they are very hard to break out of, right? So so in the 1970s, Althusser comes to a theory of understanding how the world happens, a Marxist way of understanding how the world happens, by saying, 
hey, look, uh, there are structures that produce ideologies that are just really, really hard to break out of. And, you know, that's why the world doesn't change is because these things are, you know, capital is very good at reproducing itself and it's very good at reproducing the way that we think about it. And it's so good at that that it's really, really difficult to break out of it. Hans is saying, well, actually, reality is being reproduced all the time at any given moment. And so we need a more robust or more serious interrogation of this reality creating principle in order to even begin to think of it right so he's kind of getting under and, and he critiques marxism throughout this book he's getting under marxism i think or he thinks he is um, in order to tell a different story about both humans and economics right i mean mm -hmm. there's a whole chapter of this book called the socioeconomic so that's the first quote i want to read i want to read one other quote really quickly even though i've been talking for a very long time apologies to everyone <laughs> um this is from the introduction and he says it's on page eight this is the quote play begins with a putting in question and proceeds ideally until some further understanding of that which has been put into a question is achieved right so in 1981 we are already getting a uh, version of what ends up becoming something close to procedural rhetoric for Bogost mm -hmm. or the games as literacy argument from James Paul G or any of the other arguments about how games change their players or mm -hmm. how play changes its players. Right. Mm -hmm. um, if play theory gets underneath games, right. If we need a theory of play before we can have a theory of games, then I would argue that Hans gives us a pretty good platform for thinking about how perhaps the Gene, G-E-N, the James Paul G style <laughs> argument, or the Bogostian argument, or the Jane McGonigal style argument, how those are perhaps insufficient for thinking about how play actually changes the world, as opposed to how game design or designed games change the world. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, just throwing that out there. One other little quote. Uh, this is on 11. The result of play is a structure, a framework, or order that has been confirmed by the play itself. I think that's another good little piece of evidence there. Michael, what do you think about uh, play changing the world? Um, so uh, back when we talked about the, the Huizinga episode, uh, I said that there was one particular writer, um, philosopher, person who had built on Huizinga in what I thought was a really productive way. And this guy's name is Robert Fowler. He has a book called mm -hmm. The Pleasure Principle and Culture. <clears throat> um, this book, like, just completely anticipates his argument and his like to be clear his book came out in like 2014 or something mm. and in this first chapter through through the quotes that you have read um the the like hans has anticipated and encapsulated Fowler's entire argument about about play um because as i said there um Fowler is kind of interested in um what he does with wazinga um is uh the acting as if right like the the importance mm -hmm. for huizinga of of kind of the arbitrary um magic circle type of of thinking where it's like okay for this for this particular instance of play we are going to act as if we are on opposing teams right we are going to act as if or even if it's just imaginary right we will act as if i am like the doctor and you are my patient or something like that um Fowler takes that and he sort of extrapolates it out into the entire world where uh, we kind of like these weird moments, the, the thing that Fowler's the things that Fowler is interested in are these really weird moments where, um, you know, we 
are walking somewhere very quickly and we accidentally run into a piece of furniture. Not like in a huge accident, but like, you know, we're on our way somewhere, maybe we're a little distracted, and we we hit a cabinet or a bookshelf or something that's in a hallway, and as we bustle around it, we say instinctively, oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Right. We we say I am sorry to this thing that supposedly like cannot answer us, should not be answering us. Um, and Fowler is kind of a psychoanalytic person. And this all becomes uh, it becomes a part of his idea of like uh, illusions without owners, which feeds into superstitions. Right. The person who is a devout atheist, but will always wear like a specific shirt when their favorite team is playing an important game, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um so it's that whole as if, right? This this idea that our superstitions, like I know that the that the bookshelf is not going to apologize to me or like you know accept my apology, and nevertheless I have apologized to it because that is kind of a a, a, a physical habit that I have. Um, the atheist who does not believe in any god or anything like that probably knows on some level that like him wearing that shirt has nothing to do with how his team performs, but uh, nevertheless he does it. Um, and that is exactly, I think, what uh, Hans is getting at here through talking about play as a kind of structuring activity. Uh, so, you know, the in, in the example of saying sorry to inanimate objects, um, we don't really, like, what is important there, actually, right, is that we tend to treat inanimate objects in the same way that we treat other people. Like, I would say, oh, sorry if I ran into a person in the exact same way that I said it when I ran into the bookshelf. Um, and what this suggests is that some form of human communication, some form of human interaction is kind of based on this this sort of structure that we inhabit and we sort of like, you know, coast through because it works well enough. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and in the same way that the uh, the sports fan wearing their their special shirt on game day um, is doing it just because. Right. Like because it hasn't it hasn't had a deleterious effect on on my sports team's performance yet. Because it's something to do, because like it's it's that same sort of why not? Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's that kind of feeling of, of, of why not do this? Because it's it's not not having an effect maybe sure um sure. the unverifiability of it is the point right and uh so that's one of the things i think that uh he gets at that hans gets at really well when he talks about how like play produces structures until those structures get revised through further play yeah exactly um and, yeah and i think that that's you know closer than than terms like ideology or or uh, in, in and especially the way that that comes out i think it's in unit operations but it might be in um uh oh persuasive games yeah persuasive games they're his company um you know i, I was just reading recently um for for a thing i was writing on climate fiction and games and so if you're interested in reading that that'll be out next year uh hopefully that'll be out next year and uh I, you know, friend of the show Ben Abraham. I was reading a piece of his on um, on Arma Three, uh, and that that within the context of the game Arma Three, this is never commented on by anyone in that game. But it seems like the climate change problem has been solved. There's like solar power everywhere. There's wind power everywhere. It seems like we have fixed that issue in the world. And so uh, Ben makes this argument that. Um, that it's much more it's less about mechanical 
um, intervention, right, in that that classic kind of bogus procedural rhetoric way. Much less about that than it's about kind of this assumption of aesthetics, this kind of, uh, you know, fa- these factors in the world that just exist and are not commented on, but which give you a picture of what that future could potentially look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think is interesting about that is that, to me, seems very close to Hans's version of play here, which is that... Um, I have a mental model, I have a way of engaging with the world, and if my if I have a certain style of openness to approaching problems in the world or approaching other structures in the world, um, then I can, just as you're saying, Michael, implement that kind of information into my own model um, and then come into some other mode of, of being myself, right? Mm-hmm. He's really He gets really deep into caring about the words um, unconscious and consciousness, and like the self and all those kinds of things. And, and I, you know, I don't know if those are as important for me as they are for Hans. Um, but to me, uh, Ben's argument is, is pretty interesting when it comes to that, right? That, because uh, I do think that generally in the world, I come to new information and I change my kind of view of the world way, way less than like someone debating me about it. And maybe this comes from me having a long history of doing debate and seeing it <laughs> as, uh, you know, a, as a game rather than as a, an activity that, that is necessarily productive of new thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I come, I read things and I'm like, okay, yeah, that this seems to line up with all the other things I know about the world. And so this is the way I think about this going forward, or I play a game or, or I watch a movie or something like that. Um, as opposed to being kind of didactically told through a system um, how things are supposed to work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been playing the fate of the world for this thing. Fate of the world's kind of a climate simulation game. And the whole time I'm seeing playing fate of the world, which is having me intervene, you know, in these like very specific climate based policy things in order to manipulate climate change out of, of, you know, solve it through manipulation. I just keep thinking like, this does not match up to reality in any kind of way. There's like all kinds of, of inter-ethnic or racial <laughs> or implicit bias against the developing world or whatever that is not being modeled accurately here. And so this, you know, this is didactically telling me what kind of policy positions I need to take. But, you know, this is not, I, I you know, it doesn't seem sufficient enough to me. So it's been the whole time being kind of deeply critical about the thing, as opposed to just reading an article that would be, you know, kind of evidence-based around what does it mean to, um, for example, think about how, uh, you know, the southeastern United States contributes uniquely to climate change in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. That would be more informative, would change my, I, I think, would change my views pretty substantially more. Anyway, Sorry, that's a long tangent about efficacy in games, but just like you're saying, right, there, there's this kind of like um, implicit function that I think is under-theorized within game studies literature that you're po- talking about in this book, uh, or you know, in, in the book that, what, what's the, the guy's name? Uh, the Fowler book. Uh, Fowler. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and this book that is valuable, this kind of implicit movement as opposed to didactic movement, mm-hmm. I think is important very long thing um other stuff i I thought there was all kinds of interesting individual quotes here in this uh in this first chapter that i really liked um i won't get into it necessarily here if you want to have conversations about this come to our discord we can chat about on the thing i'm very happy to get deep in this book there's a long argument about ontology and epistemology here Mm -hmm. that is i find very interesting and invigorating because i tend to, uh, to agree with hans here um, and, and this actually is is pretty in line with Deleuze and Guattari, and it's pretty in line with now assemblage theory, 
So it makes sense why I agree with it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, shout out to James Hans on that. But it seems like you'd like to get to chapter two on production. <laughs> we can. Because you, you told me 20 minutes ago you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, like, now that we've got play out of the way, now we can just talk about production. Well, guess Finally. what? Guess what? Guess what production is, Cameron? Oh, no, Michael. It's, it's play. It. It's play. Oh, cr- crap. Yep. Production <laughs> is play in, and this is uh, specifically his phrase from page 25, in a mediated fashion. So uh, play, as, as we're kind of more likely to recognize it as such uh, for Hans, is play for its own sake. Um, you know, playing the game to play the game. Um, however, uh, Hans says that work is also a type of play because it is, again, because play is kind of this almost fundamental, like, worldly activity, right? Play is a fundamental consequence of being in the world, essentially. Um, Literally, right? Like, by existing in the world, you have been put into play. Um, Because play is the sort of fundamental activity, work is also a form of play. It is is a mediated form of play play activity that rather than being geared toward the play itself uh is geared towards some other type of end that in theory is supposed to enable further types of play Mm -hmm. so um you know like the some other end here means like either material production so like oh we want to play a football game so we should probably build some uh or like we should you know, do the work of marking out the space in the field, right? Make some, put a, put in some poles so we know where goals are, things like that. Um, or also, like, I would very much like to do whatever is, is playful or fun for me. I need to do some work that will get me some money that will allow me to, you know, entertain myself um, under the under the capitalist system. Do you have mm-hmm. anything else you want to say at this point or... Oh, I really, I just find it, you know, I wrote this in my notes too, but I I find it very refreshing for someone just out the gate to be like, look, if play exists, then it has to intersect with work. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is a like ontological fundamental claim that's happening here. Mm -hmm. Um, And I understand, you know, you know, there, there, we know some uh, games and labor scholars, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a few, (laughs) a few, couple of them. They they do the good work, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're doing the work. They're talking about specific examples, Psh, whatever. Uh, you know, they've got what case studies. Psh, <laughs> uh, you know, what's yeah, that? Good People luck, are buddy. paying money for things. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what Twitch? <laughs> eh. uh, what I like here is he's like, look, this is true. It's just a fact. <laughs> yeah. That and I like the quote that you wrote down too uh, on page twenty six. Quote. Uh, people play on the job no matter how alienated they are from their labor. Um, he does a really cool maneuver here, an argumentative thing, to get us out of a trap, which I see a lot of people fall into. Like on Twitter, occasionally when we talk about labor and play uh, in the Discord too, people kind of fall into this this argument that um, you know Marxist style alienated and unalienated labor map onto like play labor or you know labor you do in a game and then like labor that you uh do that gets um kind of ripped off right Mm -hmm. uh in in the context of play right so for example um unalienated labor in games and and 
so I'm setting up a dichotomy here. I don't know. I don't agree with it necessarily. I'm setting up a dichotomy to talk about how Hans works with it, just to clarify here. But unalienated labor is just me playing, um, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, what's a, what's a fun? I'm playing Breakout on my Atari 2600 at home, having fun, getting sweaty, you know, working up a sweat, trying to play Breakout. It's awesome. Unalienated labor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even if there is implicit labor going on here, it's productive for myself. The people in the room are enjoying it. It's not being, uh, eaten by capitalism. No one's expropriating my labor. I am good. Alienated labor. I'm playing breakout on Twitch. <laughs> right. I'm making money. The, from the, the vocal, the vocal Twitch breakout, uh, fandom. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Of course. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. I'm speed, right? Well, that's the thing is I, I went on Twitch to become a breakout fan. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, just a breakout player. Got my 10 people watching me every time. They love breakout. But I figured out I could get more viewers, Michael, by mm-hmm. becoming a breakout speedrunner. <laughs> and now I'm, I'm you know, I've got 2 million subs. They want to see me break the world record on breakout. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I'm not even playing for fun anymore. I'm playing alienated labor, right? right. So Twitch is harvesting the flows. I'm using Deleuze and Guattari's language here. But they're harvesting the flows <laughs> of capital or, or, or of of money that are coming out and using that to produce capital which then um you know re-entrenches the streaming economy or whatever right so so i that's a dichotomy that i think happens quite often in general discussions of games and labor um and what i like about hans is he's like nope not true (laughs) (laughs) like that is insufficient for talking about how production actually works within the relationship between play and production itself because you can still have fun playing breakout Right. For it, play is still happening and happening in potentially affectively pleasing ways, even if you're ninja. Right. right? right. Or, e- or even if you're like uh, someone with five uh, viewers who makes no money from the platform, the platform's running ads on your content. So you're just generating money for them. That, pl- that good vibes from play is still happening. And so then, therefore, what do we do with play and labor mm-hmm. if it is happening in both of those contexts, no matter what? There's no compromised or uncompromised version. There is just production. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And then the other move that he makes in this chapter, uh, sort of building off of that, this idea that, uh, well, actually, let's let's back up just a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. This is a time when games gets mentioned. So uh, hopefully I wrote this down correctly. This is page 28. All play shares one thing with games. So... Again, right, play and games are not, like, totally overlapping. Games are kind Mm -hmm. of a subset of play activity. All play shares one thing with games, a familiar structure that allows one to play with the unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, in the same way that, like, how this, like, would, would... intersect with labor right is like you you have a job you have a certain number of tasks that you know you have to do in order for like the job to like quote unquote work right um and the nevertheless right you are not always doing the exact same thing right you will experiment with like if you're on the production line you have a very specific thing you are supposed to be doing but you can't do the same thing every time right either through just like the fact that you have a body that has has limits or like because you're going to be like i wonder if i could do something faster if i did it this way Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth so there's there's that right it's about sort of the 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 structure that has been produced that is familiar and then the the 
conscious or unconscious breakdown interrogation of that structure. Um, and then from this, uh, he goes uh, into Deleuze and Guattari and gives them big props for placing human production back into the realm of natural production. So the quote here is, Man produces not only in and with nature, but transforms nature through the very processes of his production. What <laughs> Read your, uh, your quote you have right after, or your own comment. Right after <laughs> my that. comment after this in my notes is, wow, just wow. <laughs> um, because, like, not only is this a very canny reading of Deleuze and Guattari at a time when people, uh, especially in English, were not very good readers of Deleuze and Guattari, uh, this is 10, 15 years ahead of its time in its sentiment. The idea that... Uh, um, you know, when humans produce things, it's special, right? Like, we have built a factory which does not occur in nature, and we're making things in factories that do not in occur in nature, and this is producing all of these wastes that are producing all of these environmental effects, which is actually degrading nature, um, and so on and so forth. Once we get into kind of, like, I think probably, like, the early 90s when Latour arrives on the scene and starts making a lot of uh, these points maybe more accessible, um, we realize, like, oh, no, right, people are in nature, right? The thing that we call nature, if we mean it to mean kind of, or if we take it to mean kind of, like, the stuff that exists, um, we are taking stuff from nature, as in kind of, like, the world untouched by human action. Um, we are taking materials, we're building things with those materials that came from nature and then we are producing more stuff that goes back into nature and that changes categorically what nature is or what it's doing uh so yeah and that yes. in like that in turn right because so climate change is a great example uh because we had certain processes of production in place for so long for such a time we are now uh at this point of crisis where we have to think like oh how do we change our processes of production because clearly the things we are doing now are not sustainable <laughs> yeah i mean the uh both latour and Deleuze and Qatari and, and you know hans here too and a bunch of other people you know this is this is not to say just these I don't want anyone to come out of this podcast to come with the impression that like three people mm -hmm. have have you know done this because it is a big movement. But you're, you're right on the in the anglophone world, not not as much. Um, but right, I mean, this is the big cure for the the Heideggerian hangover, right? And Heidegger's thinking of technology as um, you know, so he's got a very famous essay, "The Question Concerning Technology," in which he kind of puts forward this idea of, of Gestell or Gestellen. My German's not good, but mm -hmm. but in framing the idea that um, that technology is in fact a way of thinking the world um, and is a way of uh, humanity structuring being around itself or re reconstructing being mm -hmm. um, around a particular mode of. of as you're saying, thinking nature, right, as something to be harnessed, something that is fundamentally separate from humans, things like that. Uh, so he says, you know, that his big example is the hydroelectric dam, right, mm -hmm. uh, on the river outside or in the Black Forest or outside the Black Forest or whatever, right? Um, and so Heidegger's got this kind of nostalgic yearning for a time when that was less violent or less oppressive to nature or whatever. Um, but, you know, why I've always liked Elizabeth Guattari and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm less hot on Latour than you are, but I can appreciate what Latour does. Um, but what I always liked about them and what Hans appreciates here, too, is it's like, no, 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 no. Like that that might be true. Right. There, there might be modes of thinking. Um, 
technology or ways of thinking nature that are, are destructive or whatever, but uh, we, we're always doing this. Mm -hmm. Heidegger, buddy, right? Like this, this is in fact not some kind of uh, new aeon in being or new construction of being, but in fact it is part and parcel of, uh, of, of what humans are doing because humans are the same as rocks fundamentally uh, if we're considering nature. Mm -hmm. That they're, just as you're saying, Michael, the factory is no different than any other construction or any other emanation of nature. Um, it's just about de best describing the process of production of how we got from point A to point D. Right. Um, and and just as you're saying too, right? When we run into big existential threats and crises, um, we actually need to more robustly or more accurately or more experimentally think about ways of dealing with those things. You can't ever go back, right? Right. Like we can't reverse time, and if you can't reverse time, then as, as Deleuze and Guattari say, right? You need to uh, you need to think of things as a factory floor uh, rather than a theater um the the universe the universe itself or the world outside the human is not a place for human thought to be reflected or to be kind of worked out in this kind of greek tragedy and way it's a factory floor things are being produced there and mm -hmm. things are being produced in the human mind and we have to figure out how that production happens um, I'm actually really surprised that there is not a longer discussion of the, the kind of factory floor logic that they use in Anti-Oedipus here. Mm. You mean like on, on Hans's part? Yeah, on yeah. Hans's part. It's just a really good example. And it's because he hates the language of machines. I was going to say, I think it's because he says this at the end of the chapter is so for Deleuze and Guattari, for those who have not read it, um, they, they get really into the idea of machines and things being machinic. And obviously, this has a very specific connotation. Um, if you are like someone who is caught up in the idea of, of industrial society or technology or whatever um but that's not like historically right the word machine does not mean like something very complex like an engine or a motor it can mean just like a device um and i that's how i always took to losing guattari when they talk about machines 100 percent. Right? and uh, this is a similar move to uh, his kind of uh unhappiness with this very similar again to the aubrey Annable book right where at the end of the intro Annable writes uh you know something to the fact that i want to prove that humans are not machines mm -hmm. or, you know something like that and it's like okay well that's fine but like i don't know if that's the exact same thing that i think is going on here um right but that's deep in the weeds <laughs> uh because what is pretty cool here is that he says that Play is the same for both rock and man. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, page 32. Uh, it has no particular purpose and therefore is the same. When rocks play and, and humans play, they play for no reason. Um, which my comment here is like, how white Hedian? Uh, yeah. Which is another thing to get into the weeds over. Um, but anyway, like Alfred North Whitehead, if, if you want to look him up, he talks about like processes. And there's a lot of a lot of parallels with how Hans and Deleuze and Guattari are, are sort of thinking through the world, but also distinct. The thing that is Whiteheadian about play being the same for rocks and humans for me is is Whitehead's idea that everything in the world is experiencing the world. Um, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of what Hans is trying to get at. So for example, um, and this actually gets into the, the later bit of this chapter for exactly like what, what is significant about the human as a category. Um, if, if play is something that is fundamental to being in the world for both human beings and just anything else, right? What does that mean? So 
well, people get put into the world, like, get hungry, and they look for food, and they, like, make friends, and they make enemies. People do these things, right? And there's no particular end to it. Um, like, there might be, like, momentary desires or, like, structures that influence how people do these things. Um, but in general, like, think of it as just, like, the activity that happens when something exists. Uh, if water uh, tends to fall in certain ways, um, that is part of how water plays in the world. And what humans can do is that part of part of human play is looking at other things in the world and saying, like, hey, water falls in a certain way. And if I build a rotor underneath this water that's just falling of its own accord because it's a waterfall or, you know, we're at a place where we can build a hydroelectric dam, um, suddenly I can use the water's play to turn the rotor, which will, you know, power a generator and so on and so forth. Or it will, you know, make a, a mill where I can grind up grain and make flour. Mm -hmm. um, like, that is one of the... Like, humans mark a shift in complexity of play, um, partly through their greater use of instruments, uh, which orate because humans basically can look at other productive processes or other playful processes and then intervene in them in ways uh, that make them produce other things or other effects. Mm-hmm. And we're good at it. Yeah. And that and that's our, our efficiency. Yeah, and I think that that's a uh, that's that's a pretty big like a uh, theoretical maneuver, mm -hmm. you know. Like, and to say that like that's kind of what we do, but it's it's not because we're special, right? That's just what we do. Right, right, exactly, right. That should be made very clear is that this is not like, oh, and like, everything plays, but only humans play like this. It's just like, no, like, in, in the way that, you know, uh, like, wolves will play in the same manner that dogs will play, right? Like, this is just a, this is like a form of play that human activity gives rise to. Yeah. Yes. Um... Yeah, yeah, and I just I find that very refreshing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's all I want to say. I and and as you were saying too before, right? So this is a quote from page I think thirty three. Uh, he says, "quote As one moves from the inorganic to the organic to the human, there's an increasing potential for freedom of play and a concomitant on increase in the potential for risk." Mm -hmm. So this is where we get the introduction of risk in the book, mm -hmm. which is basically that you can. That, that there are modes of play that are more conservative, and I'm like little C conservative, right? That they are cons they are concentrating on conservation of mm -hmm. energy, of the body envelope, of whatever, and that there are some that are characterized by a willingness to risk the structures that provide for your life or your, your being or whatever. Um, we'll talk about risk again in the last chapter because he really goes hard for it mm -hmm. um, in relationship to the ethical, but I just want to kind of like lay that little post here. Um, he has a long discussion about like sex and sexualization mm -hmm. and sex and desire that I have no interest in getting into because uh, one, I don't feel that it was very helpful for me for understanding any of this. It's kind of just like the basic assumptions that Deleuze and Guattari make around these same things. And uh, two, I have no idea how it has anything to do with play. Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't even really connect it back to his own apparatus. Yeah, no, the, I mean, the, how I took it, um, was kind of this idea that, you know, we like sex is often sort of subordinated to to productive logic, essentially. And mm -hmm. this is this is a much shorter way of making the point that I think he's trying to make, which is that like, no, actually, uh, 
people like to do sex because it's fun. <laughs> like that's sort of it, right? Like mm-hmm. that, like that's sort of the the actual like beginning and end of of sex. Uh, is that there are all these effects, of course, and like people can have sex, like they they can undertake sexual acts to do this, that, or the other. But like, like sex is a thing that people on the whole enjoy doing, and that's just yeah. that's just it. <laughs> Rather than like, yeah, I guess yeah, he is in kind of conversation with like early evolutionary like theory and like evo psych what mm-hmm. now is like evo psych right about everything that humans do have has some sort of logical output evolutionary reason why they would do it mm-hmm. and he was like well actually maybe it's just fun right he thought about it's pleasurable right and so. like like not to get like too deep into this right but he kind of gets at the point that like um when we're talking about how play like the purpose of play right is is this uh uh interrogation of boundaries the the um uh, elaboration of structures or their uh, deconstruction and then building new structures, this kind of weird circular motion of the production of the world. Um, there's a weird uh, way that he's trying to get at the fact that like orgasm is, is like the dissolution of the subject, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I like temporary relief from having to be a thinking being. <laughs> I definitely thought that you were working your way around to like a, a very funny pun. No, no. <laughs> it, that whole phrase had had the sense that it was like, all right, Michael's got a pun coming up. No, no. Um, but yeah, but he doesn't use the word orgasm, right? No, <laughs> which is which. That's even weirder. I wish I'd written the quote down, but he. If you're reading the book, it's on page thirty-eight. He he uses weird euphemisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like the point of intensity or, or the threshold that must be crossed. Or right, it's, yeah, it's uh, very poetic. V- very poetic. It's a very charitable way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um. The last thing I want to say about chapter two, an hour and a half in, is um, that that he is pointing to, because he, he gets around in this chapter talking about art, right? So he's kind of moving through capitalism and the way that capitalism and, and work have uh, dominated our mode of thinking about production and play. And in fact, maybe we can th- rethink our way through it. And he gets down to this kind of logic, um, uh, or that this logic of needing capitalism demands that things produce certain things within a predictable structure and if they don't then they don't seem to be working correctly this Mm -hmm. is kind of his argument and this is why play is so invigorating for him when thinking about production is that play is about experimentation with the unknown if it's about experimentation with the unknown then unpredictability is the point of play Mm -hmm. is creating conditions under which what you thought might happen was not what happened um What's interesting to me is this seems to line up very neatly, his, his kind of critique of art here lines up very neatly with uh, the way that video games get talked about, especially around this season, which is like game of the year or even game of the decade season, right? Mm. Um, because within general games discourse, right, games are supposed to, to produce very specific emotions and very specific, aff- specific affects and they're supposed to produce those better than the previous one in the series did or better than last week's game, right? So right. Jedi, what was it? Jedi Knight Fallen Order, whatever, the new Star Wars game that's out. The Dark Souls, Dark, Dark, Dark Souls, Dark Souls Dark, Star Dark Wars. Wars. Exactly, right? And so we we're, we talk about, basically, I've, you know, and I haven't played this game. I've only seen this kind of tertiary conversation about it. But everything that I've seen has been talking about um, whether it does Dark Souls better than Dark Souls. And I don't have any problem with, like, categorization stuff. I think, yeah, if something's like Dark Souls, that's great. Like, that gives mm-hmm. us a good way of beginning to talk about it without having to begin from first principles every time. 
A plus sounds great to me. But what's interesting to me that so much is not that kind of categorization move. But is it better than Dark Souls or not? Does it provide the same affects but more intense than Dark Souls did before? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, very similar to me around the discourse around Death Stranding right now, right? That Death Stranding, um, apparently for many people, because generally the game is just delivering packages across <laughs> big swaths of space, right? Um, a lot of people have said it is boring. And I've been tweeting about this a little bit over the past week or so. I don't find it boring at all. I find it very interesting and exciting, but not in the pulse-pounding FPS or even like Metal Gear Solid systemic difficulty kind of way, right? Mm-hmm. It is not producing intense affect in me. It's producing a very mellow line of affect in me, but I'm finding that very kind of intellectually and very uh, just pleasing in a calming way right i I enjoy that i've got a task i go do it uh there's a little bit of maneuvering i gotta do maybe some stealth in the middle but i'm not scared i'm not excited necessarily but i'm having a great time doing it um so hans is saying you know when we when we turn aesthetics into a measurement of intensity of affect and we, we 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 say uh, Doom 2016 is good because of its pulse-pounding action, and Death Stranding <laughs> is bad because it is boring. We are fundamentally missing out on like anything else that art could be doing. Mm-hmm. And he says this is fundamentally the corrupting capacity for capitalism <laughs> is to is to trick us, right? And again, this is not ideology, right? This is not something we believe against our our uh, better nature or something like that, right? This is capitalism hijacking the way we think about play or the way that play works on us and doing something different with us with it and his argument is that we just have to re-hijack play back right and it's not necessarily about discourse it's not necessarily about ideology it's about producing conditions of experimentation and of possible play an ethic of play that would reintroduce different values into that system that's why i find very interesting about this weirdly enough i believe that his chapter on the ethical does not get to this argument i'm kind of reconstructing it or constructing it out of the pieces he's giving us here on page 40 but i think it's really valuable to kind of think in that way that that it's not that you have the wool pulled over your eyes in like a kind of a naive marxist way right <laughs> it's that capitalism has literally transformed the way that you get to experience play and that you can retransform it both through intentionality and a reintroduction of different value of grafting in his language, grafting different values onto it in intentional and what I would have to say, communitarian kind of ways. I don't mm-hmm. think you can do this alone. That's my impassioned defensive art, Michael. Uh, I, I get a sense you want to move to chapter three. Oh, okay. I'm just, I, I agree <laughs> with your defensive art. Very nice. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so chapter three is on desire. Um, and that's it. That's it. That's all it's about. Uh, <laughs> essentially, like to, to get us started with desire, one of the first things um, that Hans wants to do is he wants to correct uh, a, a common mis- a common way of thinking about desire that I believe we've discussed on this podcast before, which is the idea of desire as lack. So Mm -hmm. he goes back to Huizinga here and says, uh, you know, when Huizinga is talking about how play is about sort of the imposition of, of rules on an essentially lawless reality, um, he is 
reifying the idea that human desire is or is situated and structured around lack. So the human looks at the world, sees its total chaos, and thinks to itself, boy, I sure wish there were some sort of structure in, in my life. Um, and then, like, produces that structure or, like, maps it onto reality. Um, this is, you know, uh, this is the psychoanalytic model of desire, or at least one of the mm-hmm. psychoanalytic models of desire, depending on which school you're getting into. Um, but like for Lacan, right, it's it's the same kind of issue where uh, reality is this weird, chaotic mess. Material reality is this weird, chaotic mess um, that we access through language. And because language has kind of no inherent truth to it, language is always papering over um our inability to directly access our object of desire, right? Yeah. Um, so one of the one of the consequences of this idea of desire, uh, which you may have uh, sort of gotten to as as you're thinking through what I'm describing, is that people are never going to be happy, <laughs> and not in like a you know sort of like things are always going to be changing in different kind of way, but in kind of like a profoundly existential like our ability to like we are always going to be able to imagine things that make us happier than the things that we actually have right we're mm-hmm. our desire is kind of this endless hole this endless absence in our in our subjectivities um that we're just constantly like funneling stuff into but that hole is never going to be plugged until we die um uh hans doesn't like this <laughs> he thinks that this is this is um wrong uh because desire um is not actually like like it is it is an impetus to play right i would like something so i shall play or like i would like to play so i shall play um it actually delivers the uh orientation and generates the conditions out of which desire is fulfilled so that is to say rather than uh, I want to desire this specific thing, and then I head out into the world, and I uh, encounter the structure that simultaneously allows me access to that desire, but always also, like, bars my access to that enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, my desire actually takes—what Hans is saying is that, like, my desire actually takes shape in that— uh, in that process of moving out into the world of, of interfacing with the world, right? My desire gains a name and I sort of work as best as I can, um, to instantiate or access the conditions by which, um, my desire can be made manifest. Yes. Right. Like desire is not so much, um, this absence of like the con, like the, 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 bottomless hole of our subjectivity right desire is uh this weird it's this weird thing where like as we uh sort of interface with the world we develop um like the fruits of our own desires yeah the uh yeah this is being lifted you know straight out of delism guitari this is their argument in anti-edifice but um I, I, someone has described this, this may be in a lecture that I was in or something. So I, this is not, this is not my original thought, but I do not know where it came from. It might be in a book. I actually don't know. Mm-hmm. But years ago, I, I read this uh, or was told this or something, but it's been in my head for a long time, um, that Lacan conceives of uh, desire as a 
like a, a chasm or or uh uh like uh yeah like a chasm you know like indiana jones going over the chasm mm-hmm. right there's a big big gulf you got to cross over you got your object over there you got a ham sandwich you know whatever over on a pillar <laughs> uh across the way and you got to cross over this big chasm to get there and it's very difficult you know there there's um all of this, as you're saying, all these kind of negative things that get kind of bound up in that, all these neuroses, whatever, of trying to achieve it and maybe not getting it right. It's that lack. Um, as opposed to Deleuze and Guattari, who conceive of desire as a water slide, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, you you have, there is some sort of goal in mind of desire, right? You, you do want something, but the process through which you are... Um, Achieving it comes with all of these other potentially positive reactions and, and opportunities of connection, either with that object, which is that beautiful glistening pool at the bottom of the water slide, um, as well as the you know the swirls that you're going down, your kind of tosses and tumbles as you make your way toward it. Um, that the desire itself is not so much object based as it is process based. Desire is the process, and and that it's productive rather than subtractive. Mm-hmm. It's not oh I don't have this. It's that um, this is what is occurring that makes me desire the thing, mm-hmm. or as I desire the thing. Right. So thank thanks to whoever said that. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Who like the <laughs> desire is water slide is is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a useful. Uh, there's a, you know there's a reason it's in my head. I think yeah. it is a helpful. Uh, yeah. helpful thing it's perilous to cross that chasm right all kinds mm-hmm. of bad kinds of stuff can happen that water slide's all fun right so uh the hans is absolutely on on the side of the water slide here right this yeah. is he is like very clear that he is taking up to losing guitari on this point um but he also wants to differentiate himself from them um particularly in the way that Deleuze and guitari talk about consciousness and unconsciousness uh as of course they're they're critiquing the psychoanalytic model which we've been using as kind of our own uh counterpoint here um so one thing i actually want to ask right off the bat is to you cameron Mm -hmm. do you think that he is treating deleuze and guattari fairly here because um one of the things that uh, Deleuze and Guattari are getting up to in, in Anti-Oedipus, um, as, as the title would suggest, um, is they are turning around on psychoanalysis as it uh, has historically existed and going back to Freud's uh, idea of the Oedipus complex, which becomes his kind of model or mechanism um, for how the subject is produced. Um, that is to say, like in the Oedipus complex, uh because it's like you know totally heteronormative and like uh patriarchal there's the little boy who is the the sort of incipient subject who desires whatever right because he's a baby and he wants everything um and as he grows up uh all of the stuff that he desires all the stuff that fulfills his desire gets uh conflated with the figure of the mother and then the father intervenes as the person who modulates or regulates that desire by which i mean represses the desire um so like the father of course has sexual access to the mother um which the little boy will not and this is why for um freud it's all about oedipus um about that particular like primal taboo quote-unquote um and so, uh, right, so, like, what, what Freud is saying is that uh, because 
uh, people get cut off from their desires. This is where that kind of desire as lack model originates um, in, in psychoanalysis. Uh, every desire becomes compensatory uh, for something that cannot be had. Right? Everything is kind of like uh, trying to replace the original thing that you were denied, which is like, if you're being very literal, your mother. Um, and if you're going to take it as a, as a more poetic kind of structuration, then it's just everything is trying to cover over the hole that you have in, in your heart. Um, so Deleuze and Guattari come to this, and they have a lot to say about this model of subjectivity. What Hans reads them as saying is they want to undo subjectivity entirely by uh, just sort of ripping out the mechanism between uh, by which uh, desires become conscious or unconscious, which is, of course, this like initial repressive move where you have to sublimate your real desire and like recirculate it into some other form um, in order to, to feel any sort of fulfillment. Um. So the question, just to, to reiterate, the question is, is it is this like a fair reading of Dulles and Guattari? Right. Well, so the sense that I get from Hans on this point is that he sort of like, I don't, he thinks that Deleuze and Guattari want us to be like just weird non-conscious entities. If I, I don't even, I can't even get it a good language to describe what he seems to think uh, Deleuze and Guattari are advocating. He so I think I think he makes two either depending on how you how you you know how charitable you want to be he makes either two purposeful misreadings mm -hmm. or tactical misreadings in order to be able to kind of advance his point because he does use this as like an inflection point to, to make his own arguments about desire so you know maybe he's just being tactical here mm -hmm. fair 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 is fair um, or he just is not reading very closely. Okay. I think it, you know. I think there's two two general options there, okay. um, and the reason I, I say this is that uh, one that so what you're referring to right is is kind of the ultimate deterritorialized subject, meaning the ultimate um, the uh, kind of ultimate possible position mm -hmm. for someone to not be codified by. The structures around them, right? So, so for example, you gave us the the Oedipus, Oedipus complex out of Freud, right? Mm -hmm. um, Dulles and Guattari hate it, mm -hmm. uh, as 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 you say, um, they hate it, and they hate it because it is this one size fits all model of all desire, right? So right. it says that all human beings and and many many people have critiqued this since Freud in order to do this. They they are I not. Mean, alone I critiqued in this. it in my introduction of it. Yeah, <laughs> right? yes, yeah, absolutely, right. That you know. That it is a, a one-size-fits-all model for thinking about how all minds work. And it might have some, you know, to be charitable to Floyd, Floyd, <laughs> uh, to Freud, and uh, it might have some flexibility in its actual initial writing, but certainly its uptake is, is very much a structure of, of predictable structure, right? That it applies to everyone. This is a general model for how... Um, uh, one comes into being a subject, comes into being a person in the world with a certain mode of engaging with the world. Um, so they say basically that um, psychoanalysis obviously functions this way and that it creates a map and then says that everything in the world fits that map or fits that schematic. Um, mm -hmm. But then they say, well, actually, this this kind of Oedipus complexization of the world happens with all kinds of things, right? So it happens with capitalism, you know, what Foucault in the introduction to um, uh, 
because they eventually align this with fascism, right? The yes. idea of fascism or overstructuralization or devotion to a structure for no reason other than the structure. Um, and um, so Foucault ends up saying, and I think this is a very helpful language, which is why I'm going to it, that this is the, uh, the fascism of the family, home, school, and office, mm-hmm. meaning that there are structures of of uh, ways that humans are made into subjects in the world that are advanced simply because they are structures of making subjects rather than having any kind of value to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dills and Guattari say, well, okay, if, if that's the case, then we kind of got to blow these things open. Mm-hmm. We, we have to disagree at the level of premise. We have to reject Oedipus at the level of the schematic before we even engage with anything else. And so they, they have some methods for doing that. And what they would call, uh, what they eventually call this is, you know, uh, territorialization and re-territorialization, or and deterritorialization and re-territorialization. So it's three kind of terms. Um, D, well, re, oh, territorialization, D, so the removal of, and then re, which is the reapplication of. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been critiqued for this language too, um, around territory in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but the general idea, so all of that said, general idea is that the mechanism for moving beyond Oedipus and moving beyond all of these other structures that kind of codify life and overcode life, which is some other language they use, is tactical deterritorialization. So how do you use the capabilities of the human beyond what psychoanalysis considers the capabilities of the human? How do we use our desires, for example, in our productive capacity of desire to break out of these things and more importantly keep them from reasserting themselves Mm -hmm. ultimately they say this is very very difficult um and perhaps impossible that ultimately some sort of structure and some sort of codification will reinsert itself which then for them becomes kind of the level of ethics where do you make your intervention where do you make your tactical choices to create new structures that make life more livable or more accurate to human experience rather than repressive and violent um, so it's all to say that Hans takes their most uh, extreme examples to be emblematic of, or, or just to be not even emblematic of, he takes their most extreme examples as what they desire as mm-hmm. opposed to their most extreme example, right? Yes. So they say, you know, you can blow your mind on drugs, right? They, they end up citing Carlos Castaneda quite a bit <laughs> in these sections, right? But you can, you know... Um, go as out there as possible on ayahuasca, for example, right? You can you can simulate a religious experience that truly does blow out or have a religious experience, not simulate, but have a religious experience or a um, mentally destabilizing experience that, that does remove you from a lot of social structure in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. You become very deterritorialized in the sense of the structures that govern you in the family, home, school, and office do seem to break down pretty significantly under, say, uh, very strong hallucinogens. Um, and so <laughs> just that's for the, example, just for example, right? Um, and so, for example, you can so you can get pretty deterritorialized in that you are purely, uh, you know, an Aeolian harp. You are <laughs> reflective of whatever comes through you, and you are very receptive to all kinds of things. There's all kind of mind altering substances that can allow you to get to that state. But they specifically talk about drug use, and Guattari was a pretty heavy drug user of of various different types. Um, very, very much into, as far as I know, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but at the end of his life, very much into amphetamines, and that kind of led to his uh, to his early death, his fairly early death. Um, 
If I'm wrong, someone tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's the story. Um, but so you can get there, right? But they say that's that that doesn't really work for living, right? Mm-hmm. You, you can't you can't you can maybe microdose, right? But you you can't go and do a full blown acid trip every day of your life and still get through life mm-hmm. um, in the way, because all those other stru- structures still do exist for the vast majority of people. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for them, they're very much talking about the modulation of D and re-territorialization. How do you achieve modes of deterritorialization that when you are inevitably re-territorialized or recodified or re-brought into the structures that it, it's very difficult to break out of, how can you transform those to be less repressive, less oppressive. Um, so it's, it is something that is perhaps a little bit more loosey-goosey than dialectics. Um, they are very purposefully not dialecticians. They are Marxists, but they are not capital M Marxists, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, in, in that kind of way. Um, and uh, so that's all to say. So I think Hans here is reading and saying like, well, you know, they want to blow us out to all beyond, you know, have our minds be completely lacking subjectivity and, and kind of free floating beings in this kind of, um, you know, ungrounded state. No, that is not the case. I don't think they are, they are arguing for tactical interventions here that can maybe break us out of things, but they recognize that we got to come back in, mm-hmm. that you have to re-enter certain systems. And so it's about what is the ethic of how you do that and how do you transform those things in productive and positive ways that, that do break them down as much as possible. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's, that is a misreading or, or an uncharitable reason uh, reading so that he can get there. The other kind of claim too that he's making just really briefly is that um, Deleuze and Guattari reproduce the dichotomy between consciousness mm-hmm. and the unconscious, right? Because they say, you know, deterritorialization is ultimately the unfreeing of the unconscious. Um, and that when you become a subject in psychoanalysis or whatever, What's really happening is you're like drawing a little box. You're creating a little box and you're putting all of your personality traits in there. And that's your subjectivity. And then there's this raw, you know, modulating chaos that is the unconscious that you are locking out. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have unconscious desires, but we work very hard to repress those and and keep them stuck. And that's, you know, psychoanalysis in in a general sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Is the interplay between that little box we call our subjectivity and that raw chaos of reality and our desires about it that we call the unconscious. Hans says, Deleuze and Guattari just want to unleash that unconscious and, and let us, let us uh, you know, free it and let it uh, interject into subjectivity all the time. But in freeing the unconscious, they want us to, to keep that unconscious, right? They, they need us to keep that dichotomy. I don't think that's the case at all. Deleuze and Guattari are very specifically trying to intervene in psychoanalysis, and they are using the language of psychoanalysis to do that. I think the the work that comes after this, once it breaks out of that language, becomes a lot more closer to Hans, weirdly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if Hans had written this book after A Thousand Plateaus, I don't think this critique would have been there or it would have taken a different shape. So again, that's another very long monologue about Deleuze and Guattari. I'm sure everyone really is loving those by this point <laughs> in the episode. Um, but hopefully it's informative about the kind of moves that are happening here. And generally, if you're interested in Deleuze and Guattari, I think you know I've provided at least a little sketch here in case you're interested in chasing that down. You have a quote here, Michael, that I really like that I wrote down, and maybe we can use that to jump forward a little bit. Okay. Uh, on page 55, play plays the players and not the other way around. Ta-da! What do you think about that? Um, so, uh, this is a really good quote. I think it condenses, like, it sounds probably like nothing out of context, probably sounds like nonsense, but this 
condenses a lot of what Hans is trying to say in in very very few words, um, which again, uh, because play is not kind of this side activity to human life, because it is a kind of prior condition of of existence essentially. Um, <coughs> when people are playing, like sure we are playing, but uh, really what is happening is that this this state of being. Um, this sort of necessary corollary to being in the world called play is actually playing us, right? It is it is a force or a, a, a again like a condition or or something like that um, that operates through us, right? Uh, the the flux of of reality uh, sort of gets expressed through the variability of of action. It's a lot like uh, it's a lot like Delanda. Yeah, no, there, there's, <laughs> I mentioned Delanda in my notes at one point where I'm like, this sounds like Delanda. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, what, so, so yeah, I mean, this is, this chapter basically, as you said at the beginning, it's really about constructing his mode of desire, uh, or his way of thinking desire, kind of distinguishing himself from Dillis and Guattari, but really just adopting that. Uh, Gerard comes back in here. Oh. Um, Oh, it looks like something broke your brain here. Yeah, no. So one of the things that I think um, that I think I need to talk about, and I'll talk about that, but to go back to the play plays the players quote. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the other ways that this gets around the issue of desire is lack, right, is uh, because people can desire something uh, means that they sort of forge out into the world and they begin setting up the conditions necessary to fulfill that desire. Right, so this is what, uh, again, drawing from Deleuze and Guattari, he's, he's talking about when he's saying that desire is not lack, right? It is not an absence. It is productive. I want something, and so I'm going to go down. Like, what I want is to be at the end of this water slide, right? I want to I have the thrill, the fun of, like, going down this slide and hitting the pool and splashing and having all that fun. So I do the work of either, like, building the water park or uh, going up the water slide or what have you. Um, mm-hmm. so, right, that is, that is what he's talking about when he's saying that, uh, desire is productive. Um, and when he, this is, when he gets into the conscious unconscious question, um, the way he's approaching this sort of setting aside everything we've said about how he interacts with Deleuze and Guattari, um, he says, no, I'm going to keep conscious and unconscious around because, uh, they are sort of helpfully interpenetrated fields, what he means by this is that, um, and he sort of talks about this, we don't go through our lives 100% conscious. Like, ipso facto, right, he is saying we have an unconscious because there is a ton of crap that we're not really thinking about all the time. Stuff that we can't be said to be ignorant of, but things that um, we're, that are not at the forefront of our concern at, an, at any given moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so things of which we are conscious, things that are having kind of our direct and active uh, attention and participation, and things that are unconscious, um, things that we don't have to think about as much. So this actually, going back to my example where I'm talking about Faller and like accidentally saying I'm sorry when you run into a piece of furniture, right, that's an example of the unconscious as Hans, I think, is talking about it, where unconsciously we have all of these kind of codes of conduct which if we're like talking about ideology becomes this scary disciplining mechanism of how look how society has ingrained these habits into you um for hans it's just kind of like 
we have we have like these customs of courtesy that we have learned and sometimes we are very conscious of them as like when we're going to a fancy party for instance and then other times like they're just kind of there and they're not like the most important thing to us and we have this habit of kind of deploying them um reflexively so there's that what this means fundamentally for hans is that we have uh, we, being like human beings, have this really weird ability to uh, just act as if things are true, mm-hmm. right? Even if there's no like objective like corollary to them in the world, we can imagine things, and this becomes in its own way like bizarrely productive. So this is page fifty-eight and fifty-nine. This is this is the first point where like my brain broke entirely, um, and I had to message you. Because to illustrate this point, he starts out with a quote from Nietzsche that God is dead. Mm -hmm. And he says, like, whether or not you agree with this, right, you can assume you can play with this, right? And that's literally what he says is you can play with this philosophical proposition. Whether or not you believe it, you can sit down and you can think, okay, God is dead. What does that mean? Right? If it's true, what does that mean? And from the entire, like, from the line... God is dead from Nietzsche, um, kind of to illustrate his point, um, Hans sort of entertains that possibility and unfolds, like, the next 40 years of development in critical theory. Yeah. Yes. Like, <laughs> I would I would read this for the podcast if that would, that would actually be, like, peak game study study buddies is me just reading these two pages where he, <laughs> where from a line of Nietzsche, he kind of, um, uh, anticipates the next 40 years of scholarship um, because it is just mind-blowing because he just takes, okay, so, like, God is dead. What does that mean? Well, this means also that the man, the, the idea of man or the vision of the human that we had that was um, founded on God is also dead, which means that all of the values that we used to defend, uh, either because we said that, like, God had chosen them or because they were beneficial, like, first and foremost to humans, like, those are out of the gate, too right? Those are gone. We have to do some other stuff. Um, and he just like walks through, uh, this entire kind of, uh, procession of necessary entailments, um, to just assuming, like playing with the idea that God is dead as Nietzsche gives it to us. And he anticipates like Bruno Latour, uh, the resurgence of vitalism, um, uh, even some speculative realist stuff, uh, just all sorts of things. Yeah. (laughs) And it is, incredible like it is literally like i'm not just saying this because like i don't know james hans is like somehow trying to orchestrate a comeback and he's paying us like i am saying like this this is one of the weirdest moments i have ever had as a scholar is reading this book from 1981 and seeing this guy just be like here's what may happen if we assume that this is true (laughs) and then he just lays out almost every piece of scholarship uh that i read you know, trying to do my dissertation. <laughs> well, and I, I think probably what particularly hits you pretty hard about it too is that we have read lots of books that are full of called shots that did not happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it's it's as if you you know you you see someone go up for the three point shot nine times in a row and they don't make it. And you're like, they surely they're not mm-hmm. going to make it on the tenth shot. And then someone does call the next forty years. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I think that's just thrilling in thing. itself. <laughs> This is the other thing, is he doesn't even express this as a called shot. 
right? True. It's yeah, just absolutely. like an example. Yes. <laughs> He's just like, if we assume that, like, along with Nietzsche, that God is dead, well, what does that mean? And here is what it means. <laughs> and it's so strange. Yeah, and it's, you know, uh, what's interesting, too, I guess, too, is that this is the, I, I think it's Jesper Yule who does it, the Playful Thinking series for MIT, right? You know, mm. it's, it's, it's uh, Playful Thinking, so it's like this topic series, whatever. But this, Michael, is Playful Thinking. <laughs> Which is when you make when there's a structure in front of you, and you are using play itself to just kind of riff. And and importantly, this is not like Zizek style free association. This is linear <laughs> logic almost, right? I mean, everything follows everything else without the free play of assumptions. Haha, <laughs> free play of assumptions. But. Um, it's a particular kind of delimited move, but it's also, I think, the demonstration of the method, right? Like, if this is true, then here are other things that can be true if we speculated about it, uh, speculate it without it, with, about it within the bounds that we know are also true. Um, so it's an openness to new ideas and to into possibilities of the future, um, but bracketed by the things that other assumptions that have already been made. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's spec and speculation. And I don't know. It's good. Yeah, speculation. And I don't know if this is the chapter where this point gets made, um, but one of the things that Hans argues, right, is that this is how scientists work as well. Yeah. The... Is that, like, it, in the sciences, you like, scientists will be aware of a problem. Like, here is some weird anomaly in the data that is, at the moment, inexplicable. And then they just sort of, like, you know toy around with it in in their idle time in the same way that like einstein is is like the, the sort of er example of this because he's not like a research scientist he's working as a patent clerk and he has a really deep concern with uh mismatches in theories of newtonian space-time and so he's just kind of like thinking through this and then he says hey these anomalies get resolved if in fact the universe is structured like so rather than like so mm -hmm. That is the chapter, um, and there's a, there's also we're not talking about it very much, but just so the listener knows that there's a lot of discussion of like science in the, mm -hmm. in like the scientific mode of thinking, not like science in the abstract, but like empirical thinking, uh, and just like you're saying, this kind of like isomorphic thinking where if if this is true and if this is true, then therefore we can make this scientific leap of empirical, you know, or actually speculation to determine if there might be a solution to it. That comes up several times in this book. Um, I didn't find it enough to like take extensive notes on it, but if you're interested in that and how play might be intersecting with science, this book and that Sperioso book I talked about at the beginning of the episode, um, both be, both be helpful for you. Um, other stuff in this chapter, um, I thought he talks a little bit about bad production on pages 62, 63 of like bad ways of, of doing play. Um, as this book kind of goes on, I am less and less interested in what Hans has to say, just frankly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think his big theorization is good. I, I don't think that I take his theories in the same direction he does. And so as we get mm -hmm. through this book, you're going to hear me being a little bit more and more critical of, of what he's doing. But when he starts talking about bad production, he just sounds like Jane McGonigal to me. Um, you know, that there, there are good modes of being productive in the world and there are bad modes of being productive in the world. Um what I think is particularly interesting about Deleuze and Qatari is, is what he finds frustrating, uh, which is to say that like production is, has no value to it one way or the other. What happens in the mm -hmm. end product of those things and the structures that happen, we, we should be asserting values about, but the general, um, 
the general play of production doesn't actually have like since it's not goal oriented generally since it's just kind of happening it really doesn't have an ethic to it um its products do have ethics to it um and i'm saying that in the most general like production reality terms not literal production just for the audience clarity and so what i like about duels and guitar is they're like well we need to begin thinking of structures um as antagonistic to one another or as being able to compete with one another rather than the mode of creating them uh being in competition because it's one mode he wants to get rid of that that sounds a lot like jane mcgonagall to me it sounds like you can design a game to fix your life that's okay. I'm being a little bit dismissive of that because I don't necessarily think, uh, well, I don't think it works for me. I'll say that. I don't <laughs> know if the data bears it out either. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it does. You know what? I, I would love open call. Please send me papers that, that prove that games change behavior over a long period of time, longitudinally. Please inundate me with these. Would love to read them. <laughs> Just read a whole bunch of papers Last week, writing this article, seems very inconclusive to me. Uh, but maybe maybe you can let me know. Um, it, on page 79, I just wrote, this chapter is pretty off the rails. <laughs> yeah, no, he gets, from this point on, uh, he has what I call um, this weird little digression that I call the mysterious case of the cool t-shirt. Yes, um, yes. Or, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, where, so from, from kind of this moment where uh, he just, like, unpacks a whole bunch of philosophical ideas just incredibly before their time um then he gets into gerard uh and one of gerard's big ideas um is this idea of mimetic desire which is to say that like we never desire anything kind of on our own right like desire is never a, an individual's desire it is a, always a social desire to some extent um we imitate the desires that we have been given or like shown um so uh, the idea there being that, like, you know, if someone desires to uh, mark themselves as an individual, and this is the example he gives, if someone wants to, like, mark themselves as an individual, they might wear, like, a particularly cool t-shirt. <laughs> um, the 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 conundrum here being that like the idea of the t-shirt itself like pre-exists this person um if like whatever slogan is on there might have been copyrighted like the 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 t-shirt itself is is a product right that has been um produced and can be purchased by multiple people and sort of co so in in this bizarre desire to mark oneself as an individual one has to like run straight forward into uh the collective set of relations that in this case is is you know commodity fetishism or whatever um so <laughs> there's that uh, uh yeah i don't you know what i like about things that like little bit of the chapter is you can tell us this has been bothering him they're like mm -hmm. everyone having a funny t-shirt. He's just like, oh, these these <laughs> sheeple. <laughs> they don't know. Right. They don't know their desires are compromised. <laughs> There's a little bit of that in this book of like, um, it has the, sometimes just rarely, it it doesn't have like the kind of like, I, I don't know, like big, robust, like cool, nice guy vibes. You know, just like, all right, mm -hmm. let's think about this in a playful way. Sometimes it really does feel like, these these damn kids in their t-shirts <laughs> just every now and again uh oh, oh i guess the other thing i want to say about this chapter before we move on to language is that um he's talking about the socratic method 
uh, and it really mm. just gave me like you know like a lightning flash here, a lightning bolt. Um, that the that like procedural rhetoric and those kinds of like, I, and I, when I use procedural rhetoric, uh, when I say that, I really mean like um, didactic game design, right? Game mm-hmm. design that, that is meant to produce some sort of educational effect in the player. So it's not really just procedural rhetoric. It's a big host of things. It's the like I said at the beginning of the episode, James Paul G, uh, serious game stuff, uh, Bogos, McGonagall, all these kinds of things. They disagree about method, but they generally have the, the, the shared belief that games can produce change in people in significant and powerful ways that happen in ways that other media perhaps do not. Um, but what I do think is very interesting is those types of serious games are really similar to the Socratic method. Very similar. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, here's a problem. What do you think? And then we like go around the table and everyone's like, well, I don't know. I think it's about liberty. And someone's like, well, I don't know. I think it's about communal sharedness. And someone's like, I think the gods do it. What do you think? And then, <laughs> you know, it comes back to the game system. The game system's like, well, two of those solutions don't work. And here's why. Because they, you know, they throw the earth into a flaming ball of carbon. Um, you know, or whatever, right? Like whatever game you're playing, right? Or actually, that will drive you into systemic poverty. Uh, let's go back to this God solution. Maybe let's it's like a wise old owl, <laughs> yes. like looking down on. It's like actually, that will drive you into systemic poverty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of right. That, but that is how these, you know, these kind of procedural logic games work, right? It's like, well, this won't work, and this won't work. Let's go back to, um, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm trying to, to Glaucon. Glaucon, what do you think? Uh, let's let's return to your <laughs> argument because I think that's the most efficient one since I've dismantled these other two by proving that they're wrong. I mean, that is how these games work. It's very, very, very uh, of this kind of Socratic method, which he's being critical of here. Or, or he's saying it's useful for experimentation, but ultimately is kind of like a little rigid in its um, mm-hmm. ability to apply. Anyway, that's just some tossed out thoughts. That's definitely going to an article or something that I'm writing at some point. So please, please, no one. If you use this, please cite me. (laughs) (laughs) And if no one else has come up with this already, maybe they have. I don't know. Knowing my luck, that will be in persuasive games. Like that, this Mm -hmm. exact argument, and I've just forgotten. Anyway, on to language. I'm sorry I've talked about Mm -hmm. desire for a full 45 minutes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're gonna have to figure out what we're gonna do here, because obviously we're at hour two. Mm-hmm. Um, classic, classic game study study buddies. Well, I, uh, well maybe, I'll, maybe I'll posit this. We can move pretty quickly through the rest of these chapters. Um, we can, in cause fact. Because you said you really uh, want to talk about the socioeconomic... And mm-hmm. I want to talk about the ethical a little bit. So why don't we just like boop, boop through language and the aesthetic, and then we'll kind of talk about the others a little more robustly. All right, so I'll tell you what he has to say about language, and I can uh, put this down uh, pretty quickly, because this chapter on language is more or less an extension of the critique of Derrida that he gave in chapter one. Um, That is is what I would largely say is happening in the language chapter, Mm -hmm. is he is uh, doing just a very thorough critique and disassembly of, of Derrida. Um, again, it is extremely strange to see someone at this point in time in English, at the very least, uh, interfacing with Derrida with as much canniness as this, and at the same time, like, holy crap, does he go after Derrida? Like, <laughs> yeah. he straight up calls Derrida masturbatory. <laughs> um, it is very, very, like, weird. It's aggressive. Uh, it is aggressive. Uh, 
at this yeah this was so this was when uh when i got to this point in the book and i was talking to cameron i like sent him the uh picture like the the screen cap from the simpsons episode where crusty the clown is like beating up the hamburglar and there are all these children watching and the little boy says stop stop he's already dead because <laughs> that's how it felt because like i mean i have i have you know i like derrida enough i am not a deridian um but even i was like oh my gosh james <laughs> stop <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah he goes after him really hard and you know what we were talking yeah. about why does no one talk about this book or has why has this book kind of been lost a little bit in in any of its fields mm-hmm. it could be that Derrida and deconstruction were so overwhelmingly popular at this time that people were just not interested mm-hmm. in engaging with this book that could be a reason right right so um Derrida, Hans argues, uh, is beholden to what he calls an instrumentalist view of language uh, that ignores its experiential dimensions. Um, so, and this is this is not. Uh, I mean, this is a fairly unique critique at this time, maybe, or like with this particular nuance. Um, but this is this is something that has been elaborated on by other people who are critiquing Derrida, which is that it is. Um, very rarefied the way that he thinks about language. Um, it becomes kind of. Uh, removed from like material reality even though derrida himself is is not really an idealist um the way that he ends up talking about language almost always kind of talks about language as a a a separate like it almost takes over the the platonic realm of ideas in a way um of, of this kind of weird uh sort of circulation of just sounds that we're making or signs that we're passing between one another that have no inherent connection to to lived reality um which is true up into a point hans says um because despite the fact that language is totally arbitrary and it's um you know in kind of a an objective sense uh just nonsensical right they are nevertheless like language nevertheless um institutes structures of thought and action that have real material effects in the world um so like one of the examples he gives actually is the sciences where uh if you don't have a a theory of atoms um then you don't get to make the atomic bomb Mm -hmm. Right. Now, obviously, there are, like, we could do a totally, like, speculative alternate history where some other kind of, like, paradigm for explaining the behavior of the material universe comes about and we still make things that are functionally um, atomic bombs. But the point that uh, Hans wants to make is that uh, language allows us to grip reality in certain ways. Um, And because we can grip reality through language, uh, we can then... uh, shift how reality works um language and this is what he says on page 105 not only generates the conventions of perception and orientation by which we order our lives it also constantly changes those conventions through play with other fields Mm. play that is activated by the orientation man applies through language to the situations that confront him so unpacking that right Mm -hmm. uh language is not it is arbitrary right it is artificial in the sense that it's kind of like people are making it up and it is arbitrary but because language orients us to the world in certain ways we then can challenge language and reformulate language and grow language and create new types of languages um, that allow us to describe different aspects of reality in in greater and lesser degrees and uh with you know greater or lesser successes 
but that is kind of one of the th- that's like that's like the big thing that Hans wants us to understand about language, and he actually advocates uh, what he calls an ecological viewpoint, um, which is to say that uh, language plays the human, but humans also play with language, mm-hmm. and that sort of like weird reciprocal loop of of um people trying to instrumentalize language but then deviating from languages and in the process kind of inventing new languages or subtypes of languages that allow us to interface with the world in yet more various ways the challenge becomes um or crisis if you rather is like it is clear that we can make up languages all the live long day like humans are so good at just like coming up with signs and systems and words um so when it is clear that we can produce so much, the question becomes, um, how do we decide to, like, if we can produce so much, how do we find value in, in so much production, right? Mm-hmm. How do we choose what to produce? Um, what can we consider of value in, in all of the, the multitudinous productions that the humans are up to? Yes. So, um, my only note I wrote for this or not my only, but I wrote three notes. One of them is, I hope that Michael cares about language. So that's my exact <laughs> opinion of this chapter. Um, anything else you want yeah. to say about language, Michael? Um, well, this is a really weird thing to bring up in this language chapter, but uh, <laughs> one of the following off on the uh, crisis of production that he talks about, um, he says that we have to be skeptical of the idea that like, because we can produce and we can continue producing that we just should right that like production qua production isn't in itself always going to be good because clearly no right clearly we can produce things that are harmful to us um and he takes issue with a kind of language of production for production's sake which ends up you know being weirdly anticipatory of the way that we talk about like especially like uh the tech industry today Mm -hmm. where disruption is about sort of like the the production of new modes of weird non-regulated labor relations um precisely because the language that the tech industry has developed allows them to skirt around the older language of of labor regulation um so there's that uh and then also on page 108 somehow in 1981 james s hans points out that uh maybe the the most problematic thing about computers is that uh they one exponentially expand fields of play while two collecting absurd amounts of personal data what were they collected in 1981 that's that's what i What's don't going understand on punch cards? right like yeah like how how is how did he say that why did he say that was he just like wrong about what computers were doing and it turned out to be super right it's just weird <laughs> there's it's super there's some weird. points in this book where you think was is james hans a time traveler who's just doing a weird job of masking his time travelerness Mm-mm. he's like well i guess i'll just get this job at wake forest and wait it out <laughs> you know it's not the worst time to live yeah yeah so that's uh, like weirdly enough that's how the chapter on language ends <laughs> is talking about how computers are collecting all of our oh, personal data great. um all right cool chapter five is the aesthetic um similarly i'm going to give a gloss on this chapter in the way that that uh, michael gave a gloss on um language not because it's not interesting but because i think what it is doing here is very in the weeds for our actual purposes in this podcast um, mm-hmm. I actually think his bigger arguments about aesthetics happened earlier when I was talking about aesthetics and then actually happened later when he's talking about ethics. Um, 
this chapter kind of opens with the um, the claims that he was making about kind of modulation of affect, although he's not really using the word affect, he's generally using the word emotion, with the modulation of intensity around aesthetics um, and the expectation that aesthetics has some sort of educational or demonstrable effect on human beings, okay? A lot of this chapter is just re-arguing a lot of the things that he has said before in the book and getting us caught up to speed while also talking about, um, like, ecstatic uh, religious experience, right? So he's trying to figure out Mm -hmm. what is acceptable in the aesthetic and what are things that move beyond it. And so his his definition of aesthetics, and I, I actually think that a big chunk of this chapter, is really just trying to figure out how to weld three things together. He's trying to weld together Schiller's The Aesthetic Education of Man and Schiller's concept of beauty in that, and play in a general sense. He's trying to weld that onto uh, Gadamer, um, who is this kind of post-Heideggerian scholar who wrote about play pretty extensively and aesthetics. And he's trying to weld that onto post-structuralism. Um if you are interested in a close reading of all three of those things, this is a great chapter for you. If you're interested in actual arguments about the aesthetic, I don't know if it's super helpful because really this is about relitigating 19th century art theory um, and, mm-hmm. and early 20th century art theory and trying to figure out how play fits into that. I don't think play. I don't think his version of play really introduce, comes into this chapter until the last couple pages. I don't think it's super useful for us here. I think we can skip over it. I think that literally if you skipped over 19th century uh, aesthetic theory and early 20th century theory and you went back just to like Greek aesthesis and you started from there, you're in just as good of a place to talk about games as anywhere else. Sometimes a historical debate is not helpful for you. Mm-hmm. That That is my general feeling. Uh, on the chapter, he revisits the arguments from earlier around ontology and epistemology and the beautiful. Or, or how do you determine the beautiful within this? However, there is not a dis- discussion of Kant here, which is bizarre. Just that seems like a notable exception. Straight up yeah. weird. He ends up recreating just for you know some inside baseball for people. He ends up recreating Kant's third critique here. <laughs> he ends up talking about the critique mm-hmm. of judgment uh, and the concept of judgment without ever using judgment. He's really interested in trying to figure out how we create a bounding box of what we call the aesthetic and what aesthetics are supposed to do. Literally anyone on earth who writes about the aesthetic is doing this exact same thing. This is not a chapter that I found very helpful. You might find it useful that more power to you. We can talk about chapter six now. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, maybe so, let, cha- let me actually one last thing. Chapter 139, or, or uh, uh, page one. Or chapter, <laughs> chapter 139, <laughs> the endless <laughs> yes, book. We're ready for chapter six. No, uh, page 139, at the very end of the chapter, he finally gets around to defining what he thinks the aesthetic is. That might be helpful for you as a listener. He says the aesthetic is, quote, the point where limit and potential meet and produce intelligently. So where there is both... Uh, uh, a crossing of a threshold, like we've been talking before. That's kind of how play works for him, right? It's about entering with the unknown and producing something new. And But it's it's produced within kind of reflective capacity, uh, you know, within a relationship with art or whatever. This is the same as Kantian judgment, y'all. This is just, it's mm-hmm. judgment legislating amongst the faculties. We can talk about it later. If you're really interested in this chapter, feel free to hop on to the Range Touch Discord and ask me about it or ask Michael about it or ask anyone about it in the appropriate forum. Chapter 6, Michael, the socioeconomic. 
Yes. So the socioeconomic um, is is largely, again, going back to Deleuze and Guattari, um, because he's relying quite a bit on how Deleuze and Guattari are rethinking capitalism um, in Anti-Oedipus. Again, like Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus together are called uh, capitalism and schizophrenia. Um, and so uh, he is going into Deleuze and Guattari to talk about how as they argue, um, capitalism is is a sort of historically unique structural formation because it thematizes its own instabilities. That is to say, because uh, capitalism is built on these cycles of like boom and bust, because capitalism is a system um, that needs uh, recurring moments of market crisis in order uh, to kind of like reinvent itself. Um, this is what makes it so insidious and so tenacious as, as a uh, system of social organization. Um, not only that, but uh, it seems to benefit the individual, right? Because like, oh, with capitalism, I've got all of my like iPods and refrigerators and so on and so forth. Um, really, <laughs> what capitalism is interested in is it is not serving my needs as the consumer, which is the story that capitalism tells me about itself, right? In the same way that like, you know, you don't ask the barber uh, if you need a haircut. Um, like, capitalism says, oh, I'm doing this all for you. Really, as what Hans says, is that capitalism is interested in maintaining itself at the expense of individuals. And when I talk about itself, what I mean is, like, its institutions, capitalist bureaucracies, corporations, um, and sort of the ideological lie uh, that gets passed down here is that the, the flourishing of capitalist institutions is coextensive with the flourishing of humans. Or human institutions. Um, if you are like, if you've if you've read like a lot of like libertarians, um, you'll know what I'm talking about, right? There's this story that gets told by people who are super into capitalism, um, which is that uh, eons ago in in dark and dusty history, there were these institutions called like the monarchy and the church, and they were all about um, exploiting massive reserves of labor power in the form of peasants for the benefits of aristocrats and monarchs and popes and so on and so forth. Um, and then what happens is around like the like the period that I study, right, the early modern period, um, something happens the way that like something just magically happens. Capitalism comes to be and it disrupts uh, all of these older institutions. Uh, and one of the things it does in this disruption is it recenters like what we think of as or like what people think of as sort of the engine of the world um, that gets pushed away from like the king or God or the church or whatever. Um, those things that were seen as the primary motors of, of, of the world and of history that shifts into the hands, so to speak, of of the people, of the individual, of the person who can walk into a situation and be like, oh, people uh, really want um, more grain than is being provided. So I am going to like open up a like sort of more industrial style farm or something like that. And I'm not uh, born into wealth. Right. I am I am like someone who's like a middle class merchant or whatever, who realized that uh, there is an opportunity here for me to create a new kind of um, a new kind of uh, orientation or relationship of production uh, that is going to make me more money and so on and so forth. And then this ties in with uh, 
sort of through historical uh, happenstance, like the idea that like democracy comes back, representative democracy, uh, suddenly people are important in and of themselves, individuals and subjects, and they all have innate powers and abilities and... Um, you know, everyone is sort of equally suited to making their own rational decisions in the world. I like that uh, this explanation of capitalism is 85% of the same story as the X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they all are unique and individual I'm... and have different capabilities, but together they make one, you know, a unit that is, uh, you know, they can make high-speed trains. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's and it's it's yeah, speed trains, right? Like Ayn Rand, yeah. right? This is this is the the history uh, of the world as Ayn Rand would understand it, which is that all of these horrible um, oppressive institutions fell to pieces, and then in the ruins, the the capitalist who is the individual who is the human um, sort of rose to prominence, and we've been uh, reaping the the wonderful wonderful bounties of all of that ever yeah. since, and we've all been empowered by democracy and agency and capitalism and blah 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 so <laughs> uh this is a myth um and as hans would point out right uh because he's he is a good kind of uh deluso guitarian in this sense uh the human the, the the subject the individual is not a singular coherent agentic being um it is it is a you know, result of various institutions and relationships in the world that precede it. Um, so we can't really like recent, like when we, when we try to recenter uh, social life or human production onto like the individual, um, really what we're doing is like recentering uh, those institutions by proxy. Right. Like uh, this idea of the individual is so bound up within um, capitalism's own self mythologizing that really what we're doing is we're just helping capitalism reproduce itself mm -hmm. um, by by like wanting to reproduce this myth mythology about what human beings are. Um, yeah. And we and we so, think just to, to, you know, to um, ground it in the right now. Right. I mean. The discussion around you know, wherever you land on the political spectrum, right? You know, this is agnostic of, of where you are. Um, it is very interesting right now that there is a large popular critique of billionaires, of the notion of billionaires. Should there be billionaires, right? People will have all kinds of different approaches to it. But generally, there is this discussion of like, what the hell? What is going on that there are billionaires, right? Um, mm -hmm. And you've seen this really interesting move in uh, by, you know, the capitalist class, specifically uh, across, you know, like M MSNBC, places like that, where you've basically got spokespeople going onto news programs just to reiterate the story that you just told, right? To be like, well, billionaires exist aspirationally so that you could be a billionaire one day. So you can see what it looks like and you can want to do it and you could replicate their path, right? Like the mm -hmm. these are literally like bards, for this culture, right? And they're like, they roll up yes. into town and they're like, ding, 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 ding. Let me tell you about Beowulf, blah, 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 you know, or whatever, right? It's, <laughs> but except they're like, Jeff Bezos, blah, 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 ding, 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 ding. Um, it, it's bizarre, right? Like, it, if, if you begin mm -hmm. to think of it, um, you know, talking about Latour earlier, we've never been modern. If you begin to think about the way that we tell these stories, as you've said, as myths, um, and in the context in which they're used, very, very similar to like, 
you know, someone in a suit showing up and just beginning to tell you about Achilles, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Very, very similar kind of deal. Anyway, not to sidetrack, but I think that's an interesting kind of very particular instantiation of how that happens right now. Right. So, like, that is absolutely true, and it is all part of the idea that I touched on before, which is that the, 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 the story that capitalism tells is that uh, you know, capitalism's flourishing is coextensive with human flourishing, mm-hmm. which is just patent. Like, I'm not. I'm going to be partisan here, uh, Cameron. Mm-hmm. Patently not true, <laughs> yes. right? Like, I cannot look at the world today and be like, ah, oh, yeah, this is human flourishing. Um, but poverty is going away. <laughs> so, oh, great, fantastic. Poverty. Thank you. Oh, Stephen Pinker. <laughs> Stephen Pinker's coming to gain study. Hey, everybody. Studies. It's uh, hey, um, everybody. It's me, Stephen Pinker. Uh, everyone, <laughs> if we define poverty as a uh, dollar twenty-nine a day, everyone is flourishing better than they ever have before. So, you know, now if you're being um, stomped on to make a dollar twenty-nine a day, that's still okay. Mm-hmm. Because you've chosen to be stomped on, because the free market has empowered us all to choose how we're going to be stomped on. If you don't like it, just move. <laughs> What a, uh, what a so, villain. <laughs> Good God. Uh, so one of the consequences of this for Hans, right? This, this is the story that he... This is like how he's approaching the, the issue of capitalism. One of the consequences of this for play is that play gets taken out of its actual context as this kind of like prior state of being in the world and transformed into something that is consumable. Um. You know, we might think of this very broadly as, like, the the rise of, of like, leisure capitalism, mm-hmm. right? Going on vacations, going to the movies, buying your gramophone records, so on and so forth. But this is important for us, I think, because this is what video games yeah, are. absolutely. Um, right? Uh, t- going back to what you were saying about um, aesthetics and comparisons in video games, right? Uh like play becomes this thing that you consume and then you're done and you consume the next one. Right. Like that's, that's part of the capitalist uh, approach to play is that like, once you've done one type of play, you have to do the next more intense type of play Um, because you've consumed it. Therefore it's done. It's obsolete. We're in this constant, like weird reproduction moving forward. Um, And then we also see, for instance, uh, how like a sort of what, Hans might call a more accurate or genuine um, feeling of play is uh, not embraced or like some some forms of this are embraced uh, by by the corporate powers and that be and some of them aren't and I think here of course of like modding communities uh, where even right now there's still a lot of um, weird tension around how how game developers or publishers might monetize modding or like limit the ability to mod and i think also uh, very specifically a really good example here actually is is super mario maker mm-hmm. um which clearly takes as its uh kind of inspiration the 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 rom hacking scene that built up around super mario world where you got like the the kaizo mario levels that are uh, so the Nintendo has a very clear, um, clean, neat, friendly design for a Mario game, right? This is this is one of the things that Nintendo is known for. It's one of the things that the Mario series is known for is kind of the very polished way that these things are designed and put together and the very friendly way that Mario games teach you how to play them. Kaizo levels um, are uh, these... Uh, types of levels that emerge out of the Japanese ROM hacking scene. Kaizo means basically something like asshole. (laughs) Um, 
And these are uh, challenge levels that are, like, just so incredibly complex, first of all, to anything you would actually find in a Mario game. And second of all, go out of their way to kind of thwart the, um, the sacred tenets of Mario level design, right? Pulling mean tricks on the player. And then that in and of itself, in, in, the, in the player base, um, people who are playing these levels, uh, they become aware of them, right? They become aware of the mm -hmm. tricks, of, of how people can interfere with Mario game design. And so a Kaizo uh, player is going to interface with Mario in a very different way than just like a regular Mario player. Um, so Nintendo comes in, they have Super Mario Maker, and they take the basic idea, which is that, okay, we're going to give you a, a tool set where you have access to a bunch of assets, um, and you can put together your own Mario levels and do a bunch of like really kooky tricks. But... Um, they very specifically, Nintendo is the they here, um, very specifically works against uh, sort of the the more extreme elements of Kaizo design, right? They try to lock those out um, because they want something that's more basically monetizable, <laughs> um, something that's going to reach a broader segment than like this this uh, group of maybe like 20 to 30 uh, speedrunners who have the most dexterous fingers in the world. Um so this is what I think about, uh, what, this is how I think how, like, the socioeconomic here, uh, is, is important as Hans is understanding it, where it, uh, flips around the relationship between, like, the product and the play that the product allows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but, and um, in the moment that it is captured, right, by, by capitalism, mm -hmm. that is, that is a transformative moment in and of itself, too, right? Mm -hmm. Um. That, that it's going to in that because because uh, you read the qu quote right when that transformation of the consumable into the playful um, or or of of something that is inherently playful into a con consumptive item or an item or a commodity basically um, mm -hmm. that in that moment there are I mean play is being curtailed right I mean play play mm -hmm. as far as like Han sees it as an intentional activity goes away. Um, and we see this in in certain elements of like gamer culture, right? Where uh, we expect the the number of hours in a game or the amount of content in a game to be in some way uh, directly proportional to the to the dollars we've spent uh, on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Right, play play becomes delimited by like the amount of money that we've spent, or it should be to the minds of some people. Yes. So, yeah, um, that's one really important thing. And then he talks a little bit more about just socioeconomic stuff. Uh, just to cover this very quickly, he is pretty critical of Marxism, specifically because he thinks Marxism is too utopian, mm -hmm. um, just in case you were wondering kind of where he's falling here politically. Yeah, I think uh, I think I wrote uh, this in my notes, too. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think that that he's just like a big L liberal, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. like a classical liberal can't go too far yeah you, you gotta you gotta be open to the idea that productivity or that that play and production are happening uh, but this is why he doesn't like to listen guitar right uh, or or mm -hmm. why his misreading or, or or his kind of tactical misreading of dillas and guitar creates the conditions under which he doesn't have to follow them too far is that they they just are they want to escape the liberal order basically right mm -hmm. um they they don't think this is is salvageable in the way that he does Right. So there's that. Um, and he also uh, 
so t talking go linking back to the the language chapter actually uh if if one of the problems is that like we can produce so much stuff uh the question becomes how do we decide what is worth producing and what isn't uh and the thing about capitalism is that capitalism doesn't want us to produce uh things that are worth producing capitalism wants us to produce capitalism yeah <laughs> And uh, one of the one of the consequences of that is that capitalism will always tell us that like more is more, right? Like capitalism is always giving us more, more stuff, more gadgets, more trinkets, more vacations, more games to play, more things to buy. Um, and he advocates Hans, that is, advocates for an attitude of less is more. That is not a a, a logic of austerity. Um, I want to be clear because I think that's a, a way that we can definitely read that post 2008 i mean i think um, that this combined with something in the next chapter i i don't know it might yeah, right I, like i'm being i i'm gonna be the charitable reader okay, here good, right yeah. i'm let's let's play right <laughs> like this is the stance that i am taking and you will take your Got stance it. um less is more the problem with that is an attitude he says uh in sort of its normal formulation is that we say like in, in, a, in a moment of austerity we'll say well we need to cut back right now so we can go back to business as usual later right it's a minor moment of correction um and uh he's kind of sort of saying that well really uh what is <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just going to read this line. Okay. Uh, that it is possible to produce three toasters uh, for every family in America doesn't mean that it is desirable to do so, yet that is the way in which our present system works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, so it's that question of, like, not that, like, we just need to pr keep producing more, but, like, thinking about less is more in the terms of, like, well, what is what is worth producing and what is not worth producing? Do we need three toasters for every family in America? And what can we do? Like if we, if we say no, only, only one toaster per family needs to be produced, maybe two. What do we do with what gets freed up by, by the resources that would have gone to that uh, third additional toaster? Michael, that's communism. Oh, Oh yeah. dear. There's only two political ideologies and it's it's infinite toasters or one toaster. <laughs> and infinite toasters is capitalism and one toaster is communism and it's clear what side you're on. Hmm. Final episode. <laughs> That's it. This is how this is how everything ends. So yeah, um, I mean I think that chapter is cool. I I liked reading on uh, about the socioeconomic here. I, I, but what I did think was interesting is that when you when you get when you get Hans down to brass tacks, he really is about individuals in a pretty significant way. Mm -hmm. um, because, it, you know, his critique of Marxism in that it's too utopian, and it actually comes up a couple times in this book where he's like, well, don't think I'm a utopian here. But I do think that utopia and, and utopian thinking, and, you know, this is just my proclivities as a, as a scholar and a reader, those things are very, very useful, uh, especially in relationship to play. So, for example... Um, if we like did the same maneuver that Hans did earlier in the book, if we say Nietzsche said God is dead, so if God is dead, what does that mean? And then we kind of riff for you know using empirical logic for a little while or using empiricism for a little while to be like, given the givens we have and given what we know about the world, what could then happen or what would be the theoretical moves that would be logical after that? It seems to me that it's a useful um, way of, of using the faculty of play, or I said the fact, it's not a faculty, uh, using uh, play, right? This kind of ontological capacity for play to say, mm -hmm. what if we 
what if everyone had health care tomorrow? What, what could we do with our lives then, right? If we didn't have to worry about it, every single person on earth had their health care needs met. What, what would happen? Then therefore, blah, 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 blah. And so I think that utopian thinking is extremely beneficial when it comes to play in that it sets a parameter for what kind of play goes forward, which can then produce mm -hmm. real things in the world. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. And I would say like, in, in sort of the, the terminology that Hans himself is using, right? Like, I think that utopian thinking is is a necessary part of desiring production. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes, that's a great, that's a great <laughs> right? way of putting it, 100%. Um, so it's weird to me that he's like, there's a swerve here in the last two chapters. It really becomes pretty prominent to me in this last chapter on the ethical. It seems to me that he, like I said earlier, that he takes a system with for me which has some really cool ethical implications and way of thinking ways of thinking new ethical systems or ways of thinking our relationship to ethics and values in the world and then ignores all of the logical outcomes of that and instead like imprints classical liberalism on top of it um weirdly enough he does the exact thing that Deleuze and Guattari were trying to get rid of um he does not like <laughs> radical solutions he does not like extreme utopian thinking um and in maybe 1981, that made a lot more sense. But in 2019, to me, it seems like, you know, you got to desire utopia to, to make it happen. Uh, utopia doesn't happen to you. You got to make it. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. So, yeah, with that, I mean, is that is that your entire take on the ethical chapter? Well, <coughs> oh, excuse me. That's my take on socioeconomic. We can talk really briefly about the ethical. Is there anything in this chapter you want to talk about? And I can then close it up for us. Okay, yeah, no, so chapter seven, ethics, let me look through. I have a lot of quotes. Um, mostly, I think I'm probably just going to have some commentary or, like, reactions to what you say, mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, yeah, like, the thing that strikes me here in this chapter is he suddenly starts talking about risk much, much more than he has before. It's come up before, and it becomes um, very unclear to me what is meant by risk. Yes. So risk becomes, I, I, I agree, it becomes almost like the key term for this chapter, which is weird because it, it shows up a little bit, again, earlier in the book, but not as a key term, right? Not as like a, ooh, this is very important. And I'm kind of flipping the chapter upside down to kind of do this broad analysis here because he works his way to this point, but I think we can skip a lot of it um, beforehand. Um, if you were interested in the first 10 pages of this chapter, please just go read uh, Leotard and Thabod's Just Gaming. It is literally the exact same argument. It's the argument that Leotard eventually makes in the postmodern condition as well. Much more interesting. It's, it's, to, um, uh, it's to Hans's, um, what, what's the opposite of a benefit? It's sad for Hans. Detriment. detriment there we go so Hans's detriment that he didn't write this book like nine years later <laughs> there's a lot of like cool stuff that happened in the middle that would have been, been helpful for him to build this book anyway he gets around to risk and he he basically says that play when it enters into ethical systems or when we begin to think the ethical in relationship to play as this kind of ontological system or this condition of reality that he has set up that the ethical must therefore come with risk and because risk is the language we give to kind of radical openness that play desires. So if we want to make the world better, or if we want to engage the world ethically, or if we want to have values of betterness, whatever you want to define that is. So, you know, he doesn't use this, this language, but uh, feminism, anti-racism, um, 
a uh, less restrictive cultural ideas about gender, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, if you want to do those things, you fundamentally have to open yourself up as a subject, and therefore you accept some risk. I think if there is a broad enough societal transformation to achieve what he is talking about, it's no longer risk. It is just play. What is being risk well, if society? What is being risk if society transforms? Well, and I think this is so. Uh, an example that he uses is nuclear war. Um, speaking of which, check out Too Much Future, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a Fallout podcast where we talk about the same stuff but about a video game. Yep. <laughs> so uh yeah no he talks about nuclear war and i think this is illustrative um of some stuff so the way that he talks about nuclear war is that it is a great risk no argument there <laughs> um but how he understands it is that one willing to instigate a nuclear war um is one who would rather foist the risks that uh, would result from a war onto others than to acknowledge that we are all subject to it. Now, I don't think that this is necessarily wrong, but I think it is sort of interesting that when he talks about nuclear war, he talks about the one person being willing to instigate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Rather than they're like, rather than there being like all of these structures in place, all of these states that have nuclear weapons, all of these leaders, all of these various doctrines of aggression, blah 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 blah, like all of this stuff that very thickly conditions um like the 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 viability or like possibility of of nuclear strikes um gets reduced to like there is a person some person out there who is just willing to push the red button mm -hmm. when when the actual fact of the matter is there are a lot of people willing to do that and a lot of those people end up in systems that are specifically designed to give them the say so <laughs> Yes. Or like some part of the say-so. Yes. A hundred percent. I think that's a great way of putting it because that, that gives us, I think, a context too of like who gets to risk what. I mean, he does think that there's a kind of universality to risk here to who gets to put parts of their subjectivity on the line without acknowledging that some people are always putting parts of their subjectivity on the line because we live in systems that force them to do so. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so for race and ethnicity... Um, not not to go back to the example before, but but those things make people more vulnerable than if than if you're white, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And and those are and I know that he kind of plays a little bit with his definition of risk, which is uh, I mean you have it here in your notes, not a result of chance, but a lack of chanciness, <laughs> which is. Mm -hmm whatever right some stephen colbert yeah, exactly but but really what he's saying here right is that um that risk is a, play has built into it once you create stable structures it has risk built into those stable structures and the ethical intervenes or is what we call the moment where uh that instability or that risk uh, might push through a push through a threshold or it might not uh, you're right. There, there's an ambivalence there, um, which a is not anyone else's definition of the ethical. I don't think. I don't think anyone else thinks of it that way. Um, but I think that maybe this is aged less well than anything else for the reasons I've I've said already. But also that it does seem like our structures have become more and more and more based upon um, risk and chance. I was thinking because mm -hmm. he talks about the media uh, at one point. And he says like. 
Well, because of the faculty of play, we don't have a mono media, right? We have lots of different perspectives and, and we have lots of different ways of approaching issues. But then I thought, you know, it, it is in fact, there, there is not a media organization that is more playful than Fox News. Mm-hmm. And I say that because Fox News' entire mechanism is based on throwing any and every possible narrative, you know, throughout, throughout a, a, a day, right, of programming, um, throwing any and every possible narrative that explains a situation, whatever it is, right, impeachment hearings or whatever, mm-hmm. throwing as many narratives as possible at the wall, some of which are just d- deeply contradictory toward one another, right? They don't point to a gr- broader critique or system. And then just seeing what sticks through the 24-hour news cycle. Um, and mm-hmm. then there, I mean, and that's that's play. That's like overwhelmingly, um, a, a, you mm-hmm. know, a, a perfect application of thinking about play. I mean, Fox News seems to be, and this is Deleuze and Guattari's point too, right? That capitalism um, welds itself to the way that reality works. It's not a natural kind of production from it. It just came into existence and then welded itself very, very well to the way that reality proceeds. Fox News mm-hmm. seems to have done a very similar thing, right? Which is not to say it's natural. It's not to say it's good. It's not to say it's a logical outcome. That, that's, I think, a misreading. It's to say that reality works in, in certain ways and certain uh, systems recognize that. And just like you were saying earlier, capitalism is self-reflective. It understands how it works. So it is able to do that. Fox News understands how it works. Um, and in some ways is like totally free of ideology in that way, right? It it just right because moves. they can yeah just it's 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 I mean you see you see this attitude not just in Fox right but on the right generally where um, you say the most offensive outrageous thing you can like advocate like you you advocate for genocide in just like the most explicit outrageous terms and then when you get called on it you're like oh I was just joking absolutely or like you right like or like I it was just a form of play and so they use that pincer move whereby. Um, they're either using play in a way like that is obviously disingenuous, right? Because play is very serious uh, from at least the Hansian perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the using that split uh, and in a way that um, basically just means they're allowed to they're allowing themselves to just just say the most abject, horrible nonsense um, and then pick up the parts that work, the parts that stick to the wall. As you yeah, say. it's it's peekaboo. Right, I mean, it's it's Freud mm-hmm. talking about peekaboo and and Deleuze and Guattari. It's weird that it doesn't show up in this book because they in Anti Oedipus talk about the Fort Da game, which is the same same idea, right? I mean, it's um, saying something extremely outrageous and then backing away from it uh, and backing away as mm-hmm. far as you need to go, right? Not not all mm-hmm. the way back to some sort of centrist position, but just as far as you need to go to not be considered um, radical or out there. Um, and again. This is, if we follow Hans, right, and if we follow lots of people, this is how reality proceeds, right? There's extensions of systems, and then those systems either go so far that they overextend and that they kind of break or piece, they lose pieces, or they go so far and they maybe their grasp exceeds their reach a little bit, and then they back off from that. Um, I think we see other similar system or other similar things happening across the political spectrum. I don't think that anyone has grasped I don't think any other political, um, well, part of the political spectrum, I guess I should say, has grasped it so well as the right has. Um, And it does seem to be because they are so overwhelmingly willing to play. Um, 
and, and mm-hmm. to accept that there is no ground other than what we're doing in any given moment, and then we can establish a ground afterward, right? They are open to pure aleatory potential, and if the ground that forms under that is that there's someone named Q who was working <laughs> in the government, <laughs> right? Then that's fine. Then that's where we're at. Right. And we have Congress, we have mm-hmm. people in Congress sitting right now who are espousing those theories in the moment. Do they think those are true or not? It literally does not matter. It is purely aleatory. It's purely random chance. They're trying to see what will create a stable ground, a stable structure. If Hans is right and play is about what will create a structure that allows us to move forward, then this is the, the very definition of play in the current political spectrum. I would love to see people on the left playing playing more, um, although it's hard. It seems that it's hard to maintain credibility and it's hard to maintain an ethical core while also playing to the extreme measure that Hans would like. Mm-hmm. We've really gone a lot of places here. We have, and we have questions. And we have questions. Do we want to do some questions here at the end? Let's just to knock questions. them out. All right. Um, so we got a uh, we, we got a good friend of the show, Ben Abraham. I thought I pasted this into my thing, but maybe I. Oh, here I go. Um, ben Abraham asked us a question like nine months ago. We forgot to uh, back in March. Yeah. We have a question email, by the way, that I haven't plugged probably since before. March. If you have questions, uh, Michael, what's the question email? It is game studies study buddies at gmail.com. If you got a question, you got a longer question, you want to email us, you can always tweet at us and I'll put it in a little document. But if you uh, want to email us, it's easy to do. Uh, do it. Um, so, he, uh, so, yeah, this was for episode nine. I'm trying to summarize the question here. Uh, this was right after the Games of Empire yeah. episode, I think. Uh, he says, I'd only ever really read into the intro and a few chapter excerpts before, and I definitely benefited in both the overarching discussion and some of the more nitty-gritty stuff, especially critiques of Hart and Negri, which I never countered, even in other scholarly context. Um, and Hart and Negri never, never really worked for him. He says, thank you. You're welcome, Ben Abraham, for getting into the nitty-gritty. <laughs> um says uh love the explanation of biopower that cameron did you're welcome uh that halfway through the episode it became a great framework through which to view the arguments the books was making uh skipping skipping my because i want to get my compliment in there my question though i do have a question (laughs) is who or what book or article does the best short concise outline of the particular of this particular perspective on games which is i think he's saying like biopower does it exist and if so who or where I would love to cite something from my own work that doesn't necessarily mean getting bogged down myself in a conception of empire and multitude, et cetera, et cetera. Um, does anyone do that, or is it just an underlying assumption of a certain slice of certain scholars' work? I believe I like I want to be more explicit in my own work, and I'm not sure where to go for that. So he's asking, this kind of biopower or Foucauldian argument, is there somewhere to go for this that you would choose? Um, I'll answer really briefly. I don't think there's anywhere in game studies that currently that is doing that that work explicitly i would say other places mm-hmm. i would go before games of empire would be that foucault chapter in ready player two the sheer chess book i think that's a plus mm-hmm. i think if you're trying to get to those similar explanations i think you could <clears throat> put together some stuff from games of empire and you could really rely heavily on the sheer chess chapter and you would be a okay um the other thing i would say is patrick krogan's gameplay mode I think that is an excellent book that you could read the intro of that and you could really get there. He also has a great essay on Blade Runner 
uh, the video game of Blade Runner, about the differences between the film and the video game, that really is, does a good job of talking about how games produce subjectivity and how films produce subjectivity. I don't remember the name of it, but I promise if you Google Patrick Krogan, Blade Runner, blah, blah, you'll find it. Be sure you keep the blah, blah in there. Michael, what do you think? I'm going to go with you because, I mean, Ben is essentially asking a question about game studies, which is not the thing that I know the most about. Um, because, again, like my my touch points for things like biopower are going to be the Foucault chapter uh, in, or not the Foucault chapter, the Foucault on biopower, like just like the straight up like Foucault stuff. Yeah, which is the um, last chapter of the History of Sexuality, Volume 1. Yeah, so like that. Um, and then also actually like Giorgio Agamben, which is maybe not what Ben is looking for because Agamben is, is, um, a, a philosopher of politics and sovereignty. And of course, biopower is very important for that, but it might not be exactly what you're looking for when you're trying to talk about games. Yeah. I would strongly suggest everyone, you know, um, and I think everyone gets something different out of it, but if you're interested in questions of biopower in particular, um, Really strongly suggest that you just go straight to the source, read History of Sexuality, Volume 1. It's not a long book. It's a hard book to read, but lots of books are hard books to read. I would suggest giving it a shot. Um, it, I, I, I mean, and I would say, like, it, it is a hard book, but it's a hard book because Foucault is a sophisticated thinker. I think in terms of, like, when we talk about, like, theory uh, or, like, these these old classical critical theorists, um, there's the idea that all of them write like Heidegger. Mm -hmm. Um and I actually think Foucault is probably the, I would say he's one of the most straightforward <laughs> of the writers in this cohort. But that also just might be the fact that I've been, I've been dunked in this soup for over a decade now. So I think that, your mileage. No, I think that's right. I think that's 100% right. What I always tell students when I'm teaching Foucault and what, what I, you know, my advice that I generally give, and I've probably said it on the podcast before, but Foucault writes in outline format. And so if you mm -hmm. begin, you know, if you're a note taker or if you're just looking for clarity, if you begin every chapter, just begin taking notes, you know, write down the topic sentence, you know, this is like some, some ret compy kind of stuff, but you know, write down the, the thesis at the top of every paragraph and then look for evidence for it. Um, he really does straight up write in an outline. You can reverse outline, or you could, I guess it's just normally outlining. You can outline Foucault really easily. That doesn't mean it's any more explicable, but I, I for me personally, when learning, if I can figure out what the, the, the claim being made is and I can figure out what the evidence is, I can often work backward if I'm, if I'm confused. I could be like, well, if these are the three pieces of evidence or four pieces of evidence he's using to prove this, then this must obviously mean X, Y, Z, and it must connect up to ABC. Um, <laughs> also, History of Sexuality, Volume 1, one of the most widely taught Foucault texts. There's plenty of resources to help you read it or clarify it. Lots and lots of people have written on it. There's probably a lot of resources online that you can use. And it's short. It's like 100 pages. Mm -hmm. um, yep. So, yeah. You got, you got to be prepared to read about Victorian sexuality. But once you do that, you get to biopower. Um, and I got to say, like, depending on who you are, like, I'm not a Victorianist, but, like, Victorian sexuality is some bonkers is it, stuff. It, there's, there's great things it's, in there. It, the anecdotes will, you know, the, that'll carry you through. <laughs> Um, okay, so other questions we have. So I put this out on Twitter. Um, okay, so this is from Neurodivergers on Twitter. Maximum Derek, <laughs> which is very good. 
So, uh, at Neurodivergers asks, what can be done to bridge the supposed gap between game academics and game dev? Um, and someone else also, uh, like, seconded that question. Um, Josh Ar at Josh Aaron Miller also seconded that question. What do you think, Michael? Um, gosh, I don't know. I think that's actually probably one of the preoccupations of of this entire project in some sense right because there is a there's a sense on the one hand that um academics generally is kind of like removed from everyday live um everyday live everyday live huh. well, that's when the uh the members of the band live are just <laughs> tooling around wearing a sweatshirt you know uh-huh um but uh so there is this idea that all of this stuff is removed uh from actual practice um and then also like there's a sense i think on the academic side that actual game developers are uh naive right or they're not sophisticated enough and blah blah blah, blah. um these are this is class propaganda by the enemy <laughs> right <laughs> it is uh um like we have been taught that our concerns are actually uh, opposed when in fact i think um you know, and I think what what I hope uh, this podcast does is kind of create a space where we can say, like, here's some stuff from game studies. Here are some design thoughts that can be extrapolated from that. Here's how those things work in actual games. Here's criticism that's been made of those games. Um, actually put these things into conversation. Um, now, in terms of, like, what can you at home do to make this a better situation? I, I don't really know. Uh jumping off of what we just talked about i don't know if like individual actions are are things that i can come up with that will help uh close this gap yeah i think i think uh there's a couple things that, that can happen um speaking of uh, narratives propagated by the enemy i think that many game designers are very interested in academic -y kind of stuff or, or broader theory just not even saying academic but broader theoretical questioning about their discipline or about the thing that they do um, i think they're interested in that i see that a lot on twitter i see a lot of people really grasping onto that and i think a broad audience is interested in, in it too which is how you end up with all these youtube channels that do like weird game design analysis or theorization that uh, when academics or actual designers look at it, they think it doesn't hold very much water. Um, so I think there's a broad interest across game design, ac academia, scholarly work, the public, um, where people are generally want to know why things work the way they do. I, th I think there's a general curiosity. Um, so what is the enemy doing to prevent that from happening, right? Um, I think one thing that would be great, right? So, so if you are a, uh, if you work in a game design capacity or if you work at a company, you should see if people would like to be in a book club. Um, just read a book. Read a book that's hard. You do hard stuff all day long. Game design is a difficult job. I don't think anyone is going to say that's wrong. Um, it, they purposefully are ripping as much labor out of you as humanly possible at any given moment. You know, shout out to the labor organizers in the games industry right now. Um, and uh, generally, as in all other industries, uh, corporations are disincentivized from you understanding the conditions under which you labor, right? Mm -hmm. It's not good for them for you to, to, to generally be intellectually curious outside of that situation. And yet, game designers are like all other uh, workers are cool, they're smart, 
they're widely divergent in their interests. And so if you would like to bridge that gap a little bit more, what can you know individual people do? I think what you could do is you could make a little bit of intentional effort around uh, some of the books. So for example, if you want to read a book that we've talked about here, you could read the book and then listen to our episode and then have a discussion about it, right? See if you think we're full of crap, um, you know, and that's one way of doing it. Um, or even just read whatever the hell book you wanted to and meet up in a coffee shop or in a break room or whatever. That's very difficult to fit in, um, in the sense of they, again, are trying to rip as much labor power out of you as humanly possible, but that's one way of doing it. Um, you know, do I think, you know, some of the narrative that Michael's talking about, do I think that academics write inaccessibly sometimes? Yes. Do I think that there mm -hmm. is a broad history of citation where um, you might not get all the information you need in a given book? Yes. But I also think that if you look at a few books or even look at the Google Books preview or the Amazon preview of those books, you can generally figure out which ones are not going to work for that and which ones do. If you're looking for some intro into just general game studies books, it'll be um, easier for people without any kind of academic background to step into. A good um, first step it would be that Playful Thinking series that I was talking about before from MIT. There's like six or seven books in there. They're on broad topics. They're good things to read to get you thinking. But again, like Michael, right, I think that a lot of the narrative around this is, is uh, propaganda by the enemy um, of, you know, you, every, every person is equally as capable of reading these books as anyone else. Sometimes you just have to do a little mm -hmm. bit more homework beforehand, but your basic capability to read a book is the same as anyone else, right? I, I'm very much out of the kind of Paulo Freire, Bell Hooks, uh, Ranciere tradition of, I, I think, <laughs> just dive in and start working on it. Your interpretations might not be wholly accurate, but that's a thing that you work on when you get more information. You know, no one expects you to go in and design a perfect video game uh, on day one of your job, there's a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of thought that goes into it. There's a lot of dead end alleys that you have to go back and then rethink it is the exact same way with reading academic books. And it's the exact same th thing with broader theoretical thought. Some, sometimes you will have an idea that you feel very confident in. And then a year later, you're like, oh, gosh, I can't believe what a jackass I was in thinking that thought uh, or having that belief around the thing. It's the same thing of when you are developing any kind of artistic product and you come to very strong solutions and you go through testing or whatever, and you realize that your solution was wrong. That's a okay. That's perfectly fine. Uh, that is part of learning. And like, uh, that's, I, I guess, pretty obvious, but also I think that's something that needs to be said. I think a lot of people walk into reading academic books thinking that they need to understand that conversation immediately and you don't have to for this podcast michael and i do quite a bit of exterior reading i know i do a lot of googling while reading in order to make sure that i'm oriented in the exact right position um and our notes is you know you can you can look if you back on the patreon our notes are often filled with quotations or references to other things that we don't talk about in the show just to orient ourselves, right? To figure out like, where are we in this kind of big network? So that's a long answer, but I think that, that partially there, I, there's a gap and that gap is, um, is fictional and ideological. Um, the only difference between me and someone who has never read an academic book in their life is time in the same way that the only difference between me and a game developer or, or more robust game developer uh, or a career game developer is time uh, and dedication. Um, and I think if you pick books that require less 
startup time, then then you'll be fine. You can become part of that academic conversation as soon as you want to be. And I think charitable people are going to have that conversation with you. We're always very happy to have you come into the Game Study Study Buddies Discord or in the Range Touch Discord and the Game Study Study Buddies channel. People are really friendly there. If you have some ideas or you have some questions or you want to learn about what to read first, you can come in and people will help you with that. It's a it's a it's a great community for that. I'm monologuing again. I'm sorry. Michael, what do you what do you think? I mean, I already answered yeah. the question. Well, I just so. didn't know if you had, after I, my monologue, if you had additional oh. uh, uh, thoughts or feelings. No, no, no. I think that's I think that's all true. I think it's all true and good. Come see us in the Discord. Read a, I mean, I will say, like, I the only reason I am as good at reading books as I am, which is arguable, <laughs> right? It's arguable. Oh, how I'm good sure there I are people listening to this podcast and are like, these people cannot read books at all. They're bad at reading right. Um, but like the only reason I can do what I do is like I just did it a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, you know, you want to know how I gave you that potted history of capitalism via Ayn Rand? I read a lot of Ayn Rand when I was a kid, right? I read a lot of really bad stuff and I got a lot of really bad lessons from it. And then I read more stuff and it allowed me to reevaluate a lot of the lessons that I learned and so on and so forth. So, you know, anyone, anyone can like learn to read and join a kind of like uh, conversation in in that way yeah and i think the the just the very last thing about it i think that um joining a conversation is good because it's not about like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps becoming a heroic individual who can you know read derrida on your own it is about trying to find a small community of people who are also interested in these things and then reading books and talking with each other about it. You really do, I think, I think all of this is completely valueless if you are not having conversations about it and about how it applies to your life in a real way. And if you're reading something and you don't think you can get there with it, then maybe drop it and read something else. Because <laughs> um, it really is, you know, you have you have a finite number of years on this earth. I would not spend them reading things that are, um, that, that you can't see any connection to your life which is why I found Huzinga so frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> so I know we're already running long, uh, but there's one more question that I think actually touches on what we just said. Sure. I don't know if you've seen this one because it came in a little bit after the call. Uh, which one? Um, this is this is from Bob. Okay. At, at Bavetti. Yeah, I see it here. One? Yes. Okay. Um, this is just, this is a nice little question to end things on. Uh, it is... How did the Game Studies study buddies become buddies that study game studies? Or more simply, how'd you all meet to get to know each other? Have we had an origin story yet? Not as far as I know. I don't... What is our origin story, Michael? I don't even know what it is. I was going to ask you. (laughs) Because I was going to say, like, I can think... I... What I know about how I know you Mm -hmm. is, first of all, like, I think I became aware of you around, like, 2009 2010 maybe somewhere in there when did you start blogging on uh this cages per no later than that like 2011 maybe probably 2011 okay so maybe that was when i'm so a couple things happened i read something that you wrote on your blog and i was like oh that's interesting um and like that was kind of it right like you you as a person you were in my Mm -hmm. mind but also on uh the something awful forums you posted a game you made about running away from a giant Foucault mm. head. <laughs> um, there's like, so in the Something Awful forums, there, this thread probably still exists. I haven't actually logged into Something Awful in forever. There was like a kind of like grad school thread or something. And I think that's where you Oh, that might have been true, yeah. Um, I know I, I, I used to post quite I, a bit in the game development 
uh, thread over there. Mm. But but yeah. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I didn't see you a lot posting. I just remember seeing that... Um, I remember seeing that game show up in that thread posted by the person who made it. And uh, it was just like, you know, uh, well, I'm in the grad school thread. Here's a game I made about Foucault mm-hmm. because of because uh, we're all reading Foucault because we're in grad school. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, this is, this is you know, charming or clever or what have you. Um, and then at some point, I remember I put together that the person who made this Foucault game and the person who had read this blog that I read once before and liked <laughs> were the same person. And that was you. And then you were on Twitter, and I was like, I'll follow him on Twitter. And then I did. <laughs> yeah, I think you followed me on Twitter, and I followed you back. <laughs> I, think, I think that's, I mean, I think uh, you had, you'd already had some uh, early Twitter viral hits at that point. And I, I think I'd seen those before, but I don't, uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. Because you used to have like a drill style. Uh, yes, no, I used to be, I used to be much more of a, of a, um, like faceless like weird surrealist joke account kind of mm-hmm. person a classic uh something awful account <laughs> right uh but yeah uh, so so i think you had that at that time um and you followed mm-hmm. me i was like all right cool sounds good yeah. and then uh we, we then, just care yeah. about the same things yeah no it just like turned out that like i mean one of the reasons i had liked cameron's blog i don't even remember what it was about it might have been like about a kesha video mm-hmm. or something because that was what we were doing in 2011. Um, Halcyon days was <laughs> um, was just like, oh, I think I think this guy has like good opinions about things that are not the same as my own, but we have like a lot of overlapping kind of points of concern. Yeah. Um, so I should I should see what this guy's up to. It's all about finding community, y'all. It's about finding the people that care about the same things you do, and then creating a podcast with them, and then recording for three and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> about a book published in 1981. <laughs> you know, that's that's the big thing. Um, we also had another couple questions. We're going to save these uh, just because we have been recording for three and a half hours here. Um, someone's asking about our thoughts on the intersection of game studies and cancel culture. That's interesting. Uh, I don't think I have any thoughts on it though, personally. I was going to say, I would have to do a lot of thinking about yeah, that. Yeah, same. So we'll really... sit on it. Maybe we'll, we'll help you out. But I, I believe my thought is going to be, I don't have any thoughts on that. It seems like a thing you should write about. Um, and um, uh, we got another one from uh, at Josh Aaron Miller that says, uh, how far away from we are, are we from understanding game design the way we understand film? And how do we understand it better? What's being done? That's a really interesting question. Many people, or, or some people might say that we have not progressed beyond Eisenstein in our ability to understand film. You know, and as someone with a PhD and at least theoretically uh, film studies, I feel pretty confident in saying that. So, um, you know, sometimes you get 40 years into a medium and that's all you got. <laughs> I guess <laughs> then you, you're you over it. Anyway, that's the end of the episode. You can follow us at Range Touch uh, on Twitter to figure things out and learn more things about it. I'm going to post this Hans image over there so you can check it out. Um, I, I'll also post my stack of seven copies of this book that I own. Um, cause I just keep buying them. Uh, we all have neuroses. <laughs> um, uh, Michael, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at sign. Warren is dead. You can find me at C Kunzelman. You can go to our discord. That's range touch. You can either find that in the pin tweet at range touch at twitter.com, or you can look in the description below this episode. There's a link that'll take you right there. And if you like this show, you should think about supporting us on Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash... Three and a half hours of audio does not host itself. It does not host itself. I, I pay for a bunch of space just for this podcast to post once, once a month. 
you can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch to get there as well as all kinds of other stuff that we do um uh, three dollars a month you can get access to our notes which for this episode are extensive and very long and detailed um and i'm trying to figure out some other stuff that we can monetize over there um but i will, will just straight up say uh, I got to start, you know, oh, I, I defended my dissertation between the last episode and now, as oh, well yeah. as being incredibly yeah, sick uh, right afterward. And, um, uh, you know, my student loans aren't going to pay themselves. So <laughs> I, it took a lot of money for me to transmit all this information to you. And uh, it would be great <laughs> if I could uh, now pay for that. So, um, you know, if, if you want a, a call for action here, the call for action is I need to pay my student loans. Please contribute to the Patreon. <laughs> um, you got any publications out, Michael, or anything like that? Uh, yes, weirdly enough. Um, so I had two articles come out in a month. Uh, the first is an essay on Macbeth in Modern Philology. It is up digitally now if you uh, have access to that institutionally. It is called uh, Strange Intelligence, uh, Humans, Non-Humans, History, and Macbeth. Um, if you want a PDF, just like let me know. I will, I will get that to you. And then I actually just a few days ago had another article come out, this time in the Journal of Narrative Theory. Uh, and if you happen to be a paper subscriber to the Journal of Narrative Theory, then you have this in your mailbox. Uh, but otherwise, it hasn't gone up online yet. And that essay is um, called... Uh, uh, I don't remember. I remember the subtitle. It's called Race the Material Phantasm in Othello. Oh, right. This, this piece is real good. I like that. I mean, the other one. The yeah, other yeah, yeah. Good too, say Cameron, Cameron read yeah, it. read this in, in drafts format. And, and uh, again, if you want access to any of our publications, uh, feel free to send us a DM. And uh, I have open DMs. So uh, I'm happy to pass that along to you. I guess. We need to. We don't know where our next book is, and we're not going to decide live right now. So pay attention oh, to <laughs> the Range Touch Twitter uh, and Michael's Twitter and my Twitter for deciding what the next book is. And again, come join us in the Discord if you want to chat about any of this. This is the end of the episode. Three and a half hours. I hope you enjoy it. Goodbye.